My fellow Westorians, I'm Aziz, with me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far, and it's also the darkest and least understood thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination, also so far of George's style honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his long career. It's got the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the extended pacing of A Face for Crows. It brings POVs together like a Clash of Kings and has the setup of A Game of Thrones. We can't wait to see all the things it's setting up. And that is what we're here to explore here with our final stretch of chapters. Some of the most exciting, some of the most cliffhanging, because this book does have a lot of cliffhangers. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. Also, feel free to send questions and comments ahead of time that might give us longer to think about them by joining us on one of our social media outlets. Flick, Facebook, Discord, and Slack are the options. You can also interact with us on Twitter and send us emails, westroshistory at gmail.com. Check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show. Every episode of ours features thoughts from him, and you can get the full slate of Joe's thoughts by checking out Scraps and Scrolls. Also check out Nina Friel on Tumblr. She is also present in every episode, providing lots of excellent thoughts, thinking of things that I would not have thought of on my own, and researching other topics that we have realized are relevant. She is on Tumblr as Good Queen Alley with one L. Today, four chapters, including... Our first Cersei chapter of the book, Cersei 1, Confessions of the Lion Queen, a.k.a. The Mountain Turns White. The Queen's Guard, 63 Years Bold, a.k.a. While the Dragon's Away, the Harpy Will Play. The Iron Suitor, an undrowned red priest, comes in handy, a.k.a. Victorian, rearmed. And Tyrion 11, the one with Pekov's mushrooms, a.k.a. a second son, becomes a second son. Well, fitting is that. All four chapters today use the narrative device of looking back on the recent past. Cersei thinking about her time spent as a prisoner, Victorian thinking of his journey from the Shield Islands to the Isle of Cedars, Barristan thinking of the events since Daznak's pit. It's perhaps somewhat necessary to write the chapters this way, given that these are the first chapters for each of those characters in the whole book and the first chapter for Barristan ever. But it's true for Tyrion, too. His chapter includes recapping the recent fates of Yezan and Nurse, as well as his realization that he was almost fed to lions. Volantis is a major topic of the day. Skahaz and Barristan discuss the danger of not acting before the Volantine fleet arrives, while Victorian likewise realizes he must complete his plan before said fleet beats him there. 
Meanwhile, Tyrion challenges Brown Ben to another game of Sivas, a game that, of course, originated in Volantis, and they are both aware that the Volantines are on the way, too. We have bookend Lannister chapters today, though Queen Daenerys drives the plot more than Queen Cersei. Sir Barristan is Danny's chief protector and has inherited a mess in her absence, but he intends to do what she would do as best as he is able. Tyrion is finding a way to join Danny, and his companions Penny and Jorah want to join her as well. Victorian wants to capture and forcibly marry her so that his brother can't do the same, not knowing that the wizard he fished from the sea also wants to join her and might object to Victorian's plan. But of course, he doesn't say so. Many of those have been named by Quaith. Tyrion is the lion, Victorian the kraken, Makoro the dark flame. Cersei would hate it if she knew that or fear it because her own prophecy refers to a younger, more beautiful queen. And well, hmm. But she's in a place where news is awfully hard to come by. And that's where we'll start. Cersei 1, Confessions of the Lion Queen, a.k.a. The Mountain Turns White. Like so many Cersei chapters, this one has rabbit holes. Lots of rabbit holes. We're used to her chapters doing that. And this one is no different. You may have not thought about that pattern in a while since we haven't had a Cersei chapter in a while. But this one's no exception. It picks up the same robust <laughs> firehose style <laughs> of her prior chapters. Even in prison, she is the center of the action. In a, in a sense, her Kevin brings her news and each item is a separate discussion. So each of these news items itself is a potential rabbit hole. Time has passed since we last saw her. Not a lot of time. This is the coda to her imprisonment. After all, the next chapter she'll be let out. And the events happening outside her cell are playing a role in how this proceeds, though, in ways that she's not fully aware of. In other words, how, when and where her trial and her length of her imprisonment have to do with things going on in the outside world, things that she isn't fully aware of because they're keeping them from her. This is when she's starting to catch up with a lot of that news. The High Sparrow can't account for everything, right? Even though he's trying to control her, control the situation, of course, there's just too many variables. On the surface, the crux of the decision centers around the trial itself and whether she chooses trial by jury or trial by battle. That hangs in the balance. Whether or not she chooses trial by combat is based on who her available champions are. And there was a time not too long ago when this choice would have been obvious. So obvious that the High Sparrow would have approached this entire situation differently, meaning only a fool would pin their hopes on a champion set to face peak condition Jamie Lannister. Like, That'll work. We'll beat Jamie and then step three. <laughs> no. <laughs> As things stand at the start of the chapter, she doesn't have a great chance of winning via either method of trial by combat or by jury. But Kyburn has assured her that his creation can remove every trace of un from the uncertainty of a trial by combat. King's Landing is the chapter with the most total chapters, but it has been a while, huh? Keep not, planning is the location. <laughs> <laughs> not unlike her twins chapter. It takes place in the South, but it starts off with Northern vibes. Each night seemed colder than the last. It's the kind of thought that seems almost idle, and if it were in the middle of the chapter, it would be pretty easy to pass over. But it's placed first off, perhaps as an ominous reminder of what should be the first thing in the minds of most of humankind, which is winter. Cersei's story is many things, but at the moment, it's not really th focused on that or even thinking about that. She notices the cold and it occurs to her, but she doesn't really think it beyond that. 
she's got way else going on. I mean, this is a classic, somewhat classic power struggle between crown and faith. But that first line is really could say winter is coming and it would have nearly the same meaning. At the end of this chapter, she tells Kevin to name Robert Strong to the Kingsguard, giving us an undead bookend decked out in a snow white cloak. More directly, she starts the chapter wondering about Loris Tyrell and if he still lives because a white cloak for the mountain is on her mind at the start of the chapter. That's an important step in proving her innocence, or at least one of the steps that could prove her innocence. She doesn't see how she can lose a trial by combat with him as her champion, but mm, he can't be named her champion as things stand at the start. I think even first-time readers get why she feels confident (laughs) in Sir Robert Strong, even though she hasn't really met him yet. We get it. We get it. Now, it's unclear how much time has passed since Kevin got the news from Dorne and is telling Cersei about here all the things that happened in Dorne. Has he known about this stuff for weeks or has he, is he just learned it himself? And one of the reasons I wonder is that the Faith are also keeping an eye on this trial by combat and, and her options for champions. It's simple enough for them, right? They don't have a million possibilities. They're like, gosh, who could she name? No, it has to be a Kingsguard. So they can keep an eye on all the seven possibilities. It's a really small number to manage, relatively speaking. So if you look at it from their perspective, the only truly dangerous fighter that's left on the Kingsguard is the one who's in Dorne, Balin Swan. And they think Ares Okard is down there too. And he's decent enough, but I doubt they're worried about him. Next up, Loris, who is hurt. We'll talk about him more in this chapter because there's a lot of mystery around him. Jamie's, of course, incapable, not even present. Boros is just terrible. That leaves Marin Trant and Os- well, Osmond <laughs> Kettle Black. <laughs> but Cersei admits to sleeping with all three Kettle Blacks in this chapter, even though, as we pointed out along the way, it doesn't seem to be true. It might be. It's, it's kind of unclear. Anyway, she seems to be worried that being caught in a lie is worse than being caught sleeping with Kettle Blacks. She's not married anymore, so she calculates the penalty for that isn't too high. And given the faith tortured a confession out of Osney, eh, she might think, the other two will say something as well. Also, she might be, though she doesn't think about it, trying to get Osmond's white cloak stripped uh, to be done with them altogether, nearly uh, given how they're also compromised now. Kevin tosses Osmond in prison shortly after this because of this admission, right? Because of the admission that he slept with Cersei, he goes to jail. His choice now is the wall or face Sir Robert Strong. So he's just popping up all over the place. That leaves Marin Trant. He's a solid fighter, but I think the Faith would feel confident that their champion could beat him, right? Cersei, if she finds herself stuck with Marin Trant as her only option, eh, well, that's a spot the Faith wouldn't mind her being in. That, that looks like an advantage for them. What they don't want to happen is exactly what does happen. A spot opens up, the mountain gets it, and now she has all sorts of leeway to do what she wants and to get out of a lot of the charges facing her. But even after she asked Kevin to empower the mountain, she's not yet sure it actually happened. She doesn't have confirmation that it was done. At the start of the next chapter, she's still worrying over that, understandably. The High Sparrow, on the other hand, he may have found out right away. And that's important because once he knows that, once he knows she's got that champion, well, his calculus changes because all of a sudden he knows she can choose trial by combat confidently. So it's determining how he acts as well. But he knows things before her. 
He knows that she may not be aware that Gregor has been cloaked yet, and there's like a window of opportunity in between that, and that's part of why they're so intent on a confession. Whatever she confesses to, she can't get out of via trial by combat afterwards. So this is kind of like the sand in the hourglass. Like, if they don't get her to confess some things, then she might get away with all of it. And that's why she needs to be kept in the dark about her options, because if she knew that Gregor was already in the Kingsguard at that point, she might not have confessed anything. And that's part of why it's torture. And it is torture. Make no mistake, Cersei doesn't think of it straight up like torture. She thinks of it as suffering, certainly. But I don't know that she recognizes it as, as actual torture, maybe because she's used to things like what was inflicted by Kyburn and like real severe, brutal torture, not this is a more subtle version of torture, being woken up every hour, being starved a bit. I mean, it's, it's more, it seems more like deprivation, but this is torture. It's slower. It's a little less direct. And that's, you know, they still have rules, right? They can't get away with straight up putting her on the rack. She's still the queen. They're already, they're already pushing things by, I mean, it shows how powerful they are, right? Like the faith is torturing the queen. <laughs> I mean, that's just, a couple months ago, that would have been unthinkable, right? So they're doing everything they can without crossing these invisible lines. Like we can't go too far with this torture. We have to keep it under deprivation and, and light food and not giving her clothing and letting her wash, things like that. Also not giving her news. Some of that's a form of torture, especially when it involves her children. Like not telling her what Stannis is up to. Okay, that's just whatever but not telling her what's going on with her son who is in danger. That's a form of torture in this context. And they know it. They know it. They know it's going to get to her. Let us be clear about how political this is too. Again, it's the trial is a big deal. But why is the trial a big deal? Well, they're trying to hold power here. This is these are power games. That's a lot of what politics comes down to in the first place. One of the reasons the fandom has done a lot of speculation as to maybe this High Sparrow is someone else. Maybe it's not so random after all. Is just how clever he is, how good he seems to be at playing some of these power games and how nuanced he seems to be. It's, it's, he's awfully intelligent. And like I said, not too long ago, he was, it, it'd be unthinkable for someone to, in the faith, let alone a, a lowborn guy like this to torture the queen. And he, he's getting away with it for now. I'm not sure that he will in the long run, but the fact that he's even in a position to do it is incredible. And he's highly specific with how he wields his authority. Again, he doesn't actually want Cersei to lose all her power or to lose her trial. He doesn't actually want it to be proven that he's slept, the twins have slept together. The High Sparrow wants power and co-opting the power of the crown is one of the best ways of getting there. That means weakening and influencing them, not getting rid of them. If they're gone, then who do you rule through? Who do, who's your puppet if you have no puppet, right? He has is, he is perhaps gambled as well on Cersei's unpopularity helping out a bit here. The Tyrells definitely aren't going to help her if they can avoid it. Kevin would rather take his time. You know, like, yeah, I, I want to get you out, but ah, it's going to take me a minute. So meanwhile, they're fixing some of the problems she created. They're kind of using this time to be like, okay, while she's gone, let's, let's rule properly for a while. <laughs> while it's another, talk about having another window of opportunity because they know that she can't just stay in there forever. One way or another, she's getting out. This is coming to a head. And as we talked at length about when Joffrey was murdered, Tommen is tractable. It was one of the reasons Joffrey was murdered. So people can control Tommen, right? The High, Queen of Thorns realized that. The High Sparrow knows that too. 
someone like Littlefinger and Varys see that as well. They see that other people are going to take that opportunity to try to rule through a tractable young king. We saw that on TV, right? The High Sparrow was big on trying to get Tommen on his side. He wasn't trying to get rid of him. He wasn't trying to push these bastardy allegations because then he loses his window to power. And worse, it's alluded to here, who comes to power instead if, if this Lannister regime is overthrown? I don't think they know about Aegon yet. If they did, then they would certainly be relatively pleased with that possibility, I would think. Or if they do know and aren't telling us, it might actually explain some of this because they're planning on paving the road for Aegon and Young Griff or Aegon and Old Griff. <laughs> but I don't think they know about that. So it's Stannis is the name that comes up and they definitely don't want him, right? He's the false faith guy worshiping a red demon. They're not about him. And, of all, and he wouldn't share power with them and it would be hard for them to manipulate him. So there's just like a billion reasons they don't want Stannis. So importantly, they need Cersei to confess a few things, right? They need to, it's kind of a tightrope walk. Was tasked with killing the former High Septon and he's admitted to it, but she can't admit to that. She can't, even though he's completely confessed it, she has to act like he's lying because, well, killing the High Septon, (laughs) if you confess to that, the penalty is, I presume, something a lot worse than a walk of shame. It probably involves her losing all her power instead of, symbolically losing her power in this means. Notice, too, another way he comes up so clever, his line of questioning with regards to how she frames her answers. He, at one point, she says something along the lines of, oh, I couldn't trust the Kettle Blacks, so I had to sleep with them. It's the only way I could be sure it would keep their loyalty. And then he cleverly brings up other people that, he, that she didn't do that with, but clearly there was... A relationship with Jamie, for one, like he, she doesn't admit to that, of course. But if she, but that argument applies in this in a different way. Like, why did she need to sleep with Jamie to keep him loyal? <laughs> why did she need to sleep with Lancel? She says she used sex as a weapon to keep these people loyal. But why was that necessary on her cousin and her brother? Weren't they going to be loyal anyway? Like, why was it? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't really add up there. So, and he perceives that he doesn't pin her down on it, he just narrows down her her possible lies. It's really clever. He he boxes her in a corner and she doesn't even seem to realize it's happening. That's part of the nature of telling 12 different lies and trying to juggle them all at once. But he's also just not just knocking the different balls out of the air as she's juggling. He's letting her drop them, letting her hang herself. And of course, when she's sitting there reflecting on what's gone wrong, this is something that Highsburg is going to perceive about her personality is that she's not very good at taking responsibility for her own role and where she's at right now. <laughs> she's t- blaming people left and right. One of the most outstanding and like head smacking moments is when she gets upset in her mind over Osney Kettleblack not holding out under torture when his torture was extremely brutal. When she gives up on torture, she is tortured into a confession and all these other things, and her torture was way milder than his. <laughs> so she cracked under way less strain than him, yet she's still complaining that he cracked. And she still doesn't blame herself for what happened to Orain Waters and all these other things. And, and her reaction to, heading off with, uh, to Jamie heading off with Brienne is kind of an extension of this. She clearly doesn't recognize how damaged 
uh, her relationship with Jamie is at this point. There's certainly signs that it could become repaired. But right now, I mean, he just threw her letter out. He didn't, or he did refuse to come rescue her. She doesn't know that. She's willfully even denying the possibility of that. But she's treating her, uh, their, their problems. There's large problems they have, like some sort of spat that'll just kind of heal itself. Like the septas. She looks down on Brienne for what she looked, for what they look like. Here's a quote. The queen remembered the maid of Tarth, a huge, ugly, shambling thing who dressed in man's mail. Jamie would never abandon me for such a creature. My raven never reached him. Elsewise, he would have come. That's her only thing that can make sense to her. Clearly, he never got the message. That's the only thing that makes sense. Otherwise, he would be here. She just doesn't even entertain other possibilities. We, of course, know how extremely untrue that is. Not only is this Cersei's misogyny returning, she judging people by how they look, which is such a big part of how she's been judged her whole life and that the world she exists in. There's definitely hypocrisy here too. She <laughs> very often, including in this chapter, she thinks about, man, if only I was able to wield a sword and could do all this stuff. And that's what Brienne has. She has that ability, yet she's denigrating Brienne for having the skill that she wishes she herself had. Another really incredible thought Cersei has that's just so detached from reality is this one. Lancel wanted me more than ever, more than I ever wanted him. He still does, I wager. What? <laughs> We've seen Lancel, and that dude does not love Cersei sexually. <laughs> no way. That is just wild that she would think that. I mean, part of it's that she doesn't know, like she hasn't sat down to talk to him and hasn't seen what he's like now that much. But she has to some degree. She has seen what he looks like and that he's pious now. So part of that's our own perspective. And she's not fully, she doesn't have all the information, but still that just kind of blows my mind that she would think that way. Then she says uh, her pride is a big deal here. And it's one of the things that when her pride is under control, when she masters her own pride, eventually when it just keeps going, she finally, it's the thing that probably breaks last. She says, I'll give up everything I have to get out of here, but I won't cry. That they will never have. And well, that's exactly what happens. She, <laughs> she breaks that promise to herself in two different ways. Here's the first one. She began to sob uncontrollably. The high septon made no move to comfort her. He sat there with his hard eyes fixed on her, watching her weep, as stony as the statues of the seven in the sept above. Nina writes that it's no mistake that Cersei immediately compares him to Tywin. And yeah, I, it's true. It's, it's a great take. And boy, that's ominous because obviously so much of Cersei's life, her upbringing and her place in the world has a lot to do with her all-powerful, overbearing father and, and his legacy, such that it is. And he's really confident Tywin or the High Sparrow. I mean, we are comparing them and it, it works for both of them. And he's efficient in ways that are often a bit cruel, but you can at least see what's going on and understand why he's behaving in this manner. For example, the High Sparrow doesn't actually come off as super religious, even though he is, it's a weird, maybe a weird thing to hear about a man who is the head of the biggest religion in the continent. But this guy that Nina draws a comparison to, say, Baylor the Blessed, who was legitimately devout, and everything he did was through the lens of his belief system. He wasn't a politician all that much. 
this guy's a politician. This guy plays power games. He certainly, I'm not saying he's not pious. Nina doesn't say he's not pious either, but he's not purely devout. He's not this uh, zealot. He uses the zealotry of his followers. The power that brings him, he uses that very cynically. But he himself is not out here spewing his beliefs in ways that would undermine his political goals, which typically those things don't align very well. Like matters of faith and matters of politics often align only because someone forces that. They shoehorn it into, into each other. But truly, like when you're getting into the, the, the words and the holy books, they don't really speak to getting involved in politics that much. And that's why Baylor the Blessed eschewed a lot of that. He was the Septon King and people appreciated and respected that about him is that he was not terribly political, that he didn't mix the two very much. The guy had lots of other issues. Another thing that the High Sparrow realizes most likely, something that Tywin would be wary of, is that a lot of tears are faked. And especially at this level when such huge things are at stake. In this case, those that first set of tears probably was fake. Cersei was probably exaggerating to get a little sympathy. But this High Sparrow is like, nah, that's not going to work. <laughs> He's not moved like that. He's too cynical. Too, there's too much at stake that he, he's aware of as well. She knows that she's going to get a trial now. After her confession, she thinks, oh, no trial. I've confessed. And he's like, no, you're, we still have to sort through the things that you've denied. When she's told she can see Tommen at last, after her confession, they start treating her nicely. They give her, not nicely, but a lot nicer. And when she's told she can see Tommen, she breaks down crying, and it's for real. That It's not faked, and it's understandable. It's a moment of real sympathy, I imagine, especially for the moms and other parents, that that's a big deal. Um, that, that separation is something that you can have sympathy for, even amidst so many of other Cersei's cruelties and crimes. So she realizes, I think, maybe too late that this whole game was rigged from the start. That's a good way to put it. Joe writes that way. The only way to avoid the trial, which she thought she could avoid, was to confess to everything. And as she already did know, confessing to everything would be far worse because that's potentially execution or exile or something along those lines because her worst crimes are just that bad. So she can't confess to those. And she hates feeling so helpless. And that's another thing we can sympathize with because that's a big part of her arc. It's a big part of something that she is a, something of a, maybe not a champion of, but of someone who causes us to talk about a lot. Her, it's, it's in her mind and in her chapters a lot. A woman in a male-dominated society who has power, but is constantly having to fight for it, constantly having it pushed away. And her pinning a lot of it on her gender when a lot of it is actually her poor choices. Um, and the interplay between those two gives us a lot to work with because she constantly sees the unfairness, whereas you know us readers are able to parse through it and sort through and say, some of it's your fault, Cersei. But, there's, but she's right on a lot of other levels that there's a ton of gender-oriented stuff going on here that is very imbalanced. No where else in the series do we see these levels of imbalance, I think, than with the way the faith is set up? The High Sparrow is, reminds us just how deeply misogynist the worship of the seven is at its root, right? It's not just society being sexist. That is there too. I'm not saying otherwise, but the faith is way more misogynist than the average 
Westerosi institution. It's their basic core belief that all women are wanton and you know, objects of that drive men to desire. And it's the women's fault when men have lustful feelings. That's their view of the world. It's not some cultural argument they have between themselves. It's in their books. It's like their core belief system. It's not really challengeable. That's really bad, right? That's something we can look at and go, okay, this is super unfair. Even for the times, it's out of whack. And it's a reasonable thing to feel sympathy for Cersei over. And it's incredible that George is able to make this incredibly cruel character who does so many awful things, has so many thoughts that we can't understand. We don't have any sense of, I would feel that way too, (laughs) for some of these things. And other things, her humanity as a mother, her humanity as a woman, those things we can totally feel sympathy and and empathy for. And that's just amazing that there's so much going on here. It's both the beauty and the chaos and the firehose nature of Cersei chapters. Let's talk about when she's speaking with Kevin for a minute. This is a scene that looks really different on reread because first time through, it feels like Kevin's weighing the option of the walk and forcing Cersei into that and agreeing to the High Sparrow, agreeing with the High Sparrow that that's what's going to happen. And then you read Kevin's chapter and he's lying to himself in ways that Cersei, (laughs) even Cersei might be like, hey, you're not the only one lying to yourself. Because Kevin has the thought, Tywin would understand, I think, that we had her do the walk. Are you kidding me? Tywin would never have consent. He would have, he, see, Kevin says, how could I get you out of here? I would have to turn this place to, uh, you know, uh, an abattoir. It would be a slaughterhouse to get you out of here. And Tywin would be like, okay, so be it. (laughs) I don't like doing that, but it's better than, you know, Lannister power being shot down. It's the lesser of two evils in Tywin's mind. For Kevin, though, Kevin's... uh, He's not, uh, he doesn't have that level of aggression, that level of dominance that uh, Tywin has. The dark side here is that Kevin agreed to it. He's trying to get Cersei to sign off on the walk in this scene. He's already agreed to it. She doesn't know it. She thinks, oh, it's not going to happen. I'll never consent to that. But then the start of the next chapter, it's getting ready to happen. It's, it's been skipped over. It's been agreed to. She's got no choice. Uh, the matter of Loras Tyrell. That's another interesting point here. It seems like they're trying to keep his news of him a secret. There's this one line where one of the Septa starts talking about him and the other Septa shuts her up. Cersei doesn't think much of it, but she's definitely wondering about Loras Tyrell. Well, as Nina writes, we don't think that it's some sort of hint that Loras is okay. Certainly not that he's fully healthy. It is odd that he's been laid up for so long And Kevin thinks about him having been hurt without giving us any sort of update on his condition. He thinks, well, he had gotten gravely wounded, a dragonstone, but he doesn't really think of it beyond that point. So at least by Kevin's epilogue, Loras is probably still alive because as much as they could keep that from Cersei, I'm not really sure they could keep it from Kevin. I don't think they could keep it from a lot of people, frankly, because keeping news like this a secret, this many involved conspirators, that's the number one rule, right? When you're trying to examine the possibility for conspiracy, whether it's valid or not. One of the first things you look at is how many people are involved. And there were, there would have to be a lot of people involved in keeping this Sir Loris is badly wounded, but isn't actually. This goes for real life too. Just saying, everybody. Yes. <laughs> You're, listen to Ashea. She's right. Yes. So 
think about how long it's been. This actual spot has been open in the Kingsguard, though. Like they're they're jockeying for position here, trying to find out, keep the news from Cersei. Meanwhile, Doran Martell kept the fact that there was an open slot in the Kingsguard open for a while. Aerys Okar died in a Feast for Crows chapter twenty two. That was a while ago. We don't have time to pursue what ifs, but I'll throw this one out to you all to consider on your own. If Doran knew how much was riding on this Kingsguard spot, like if he knew that Cersei really needed it, he might have tried even harder to keep this delay even more. I remember he had his lords delay Balin Swan by taking him hunting and hawking. He'd be like, take him hunting and hawking again. Keep it on. Keep it going until Cersei cracks. I guess Feast for Crows, that chapter, do we know how well in advance it was of this chapter in A Dance of Dragons? Because they do cross over. They do cross over, yeah. Roughly, this is the point now that we are past everything in Feast. Um, okay, cool. With maybe an exception or two, but I'm pretty sure we're past, I think, I think we're past all the Feast arcs at this point. With maybe the exception of some of the Ironborn stuff, but I, that's so far apart that it doesn't necessarily matter. Arya's stuff is kind of hard to sync up at some points too, but that's also not terribly important. It is important to keep in mind, for example, some of the other characters like Randall Tarly and Marjorie Tyrell. That's a huge under-the-radar factor going on here. Randall is in possession of Marjorie and her cousins and the the other ones who are going to be going to trial. Now, we've already learned through this chapter, and we kind of suspected it would fall apart, that Cersei's plot to incriminate Marjorie is all but done. All her witnesses are mostly gone or dead or not telling their stories anymore. So that's really just not going to happen. So Randall Tarley holding on to Marjorie is quite interesting. He swore an oath to deliver her to trial when the time comes. But he's one of our top, top candidates for switching sides to Aegon. Possibly already knows about it. There's two permutations of that, whether he already is preparing to switch or whether he will when the opportunity comes. Certainly by the time Kevin's chapter rolls around, they're all aware of the Golden Company and it's Randall Tarly downplaying them, which is in itself a clue. So what happens if, say, the Faith is out of the picture and Randall still has Marjorie Tyrell in his possession? What an incredibly valuable hostage that becomes. And all these other highborn girls too. He's got That's a lot of hostages. That's a lot of power Randall Tarly has. And he's the the justiciar, just a a moment to think about the fact that Randall Tarley's master of laws. Remember the scene in Maidenpool? All those judgments he issued with Brienne watching that was, this guy's now in charge of law for the whole realm. Yikes, right? So Paxter Redwine is admiral. Eh, I mean, that guy's a pedophile, but he maybe he'll be a decent Lord Admiral. I don't know, but this is bad, right? This, this looking, this is another. You look at this council now, and it was bad when Cersei had it, but it's still really bad. <laughs> they still have Pycelle. Uh, they they don't have Littlefinger at least, but they have Harry Swift. <sighs> yeah, of course, Cersei named him. A lot of these people are in place because of Cersei, but Kevin <laughs> didn't really make it any better, and arguably he made it worse, which is really amazing. Uh, and she's still, of course, Cersei's still just the Tyrells are enemies. There's no uh, nuance to this for her. She doesn't really think of the way Tywin or Kevin thinks of is just keeping them at a distance, using them, kind of working together, having common goals, but keeping being wary. Uh, Cersei is more on the no, black and white. We play nice, but we all know we're enemies. 
Cersei also would be very frustrated to hear that Kevin's like, no, I can't get you out of here. And I don't even have an army nearby. Meanwhile, Mace Tyrell has two armies nearby. And that just probably hurts her pride in ways that are <laughs> hard to describe because they're coming to rescue Marjorie, and Jamie hasn't even come to rescue her. So there's thousands of people to rescue Marjorie. not even, you know, she's got what, Kyburn? The mention of the Golden Company is interesting. Of course, at this point, they don't know who it is. Um, they still think it's coming for Stannis. So this is something we'll leave on the shelf for now. It's mentioned here and it's interesting, but we'll, we'll focus on it more later. We're not far from John Connington's uh, second chapter. Unella is somebody we need to pay attention to. Of course, she was the, the septa who got the most screen time on TV, but the reason for us to pay attention to, to her here is a little different. Joe very astutely notes that she's the one writing down Cersei's confessions. She's the one like the court uh, stenographer sort of role. So she knows them perhaps as well as anyone. And think about the fact that these, there's all these other septas and there's ugly septas, according to Cersei. What happens when Tyene Sand shows up and joins their ranks? She's very much not ugly. And you wonder if this is going to be Cersei's hypocrisy. Like, I hate them because they're ugly. I hate them because they're pretty. <laughs> I just hate them. That's going to be interesting, though. Cersei, Arianne, John Connington, and all these other POVs that we can see this happened through so, uh, these byplay between the faith with their new characters getting involved. I find the thematic resonance of Cersei having the mountain replace Jamie as her protector and sword arm to be fascinating. Like Jamie was kind of like her soul, like her twin, like part of her. But this is like an inver a disgusting, perverse inversion of that. An undead champion. A, it's a soulless protector. There's no soul to this. And wait till we get to the next chapter when we hash out things that take us all the way back to the earliest chapters of A Game of Thrones to see how long ago George set some of this up. She laments, not for the first time, how different it would be, like we brought up with Brienne, if she were strong enough and had the skill to wield a sword. She thinks how she'd fight her way out of this place or that she would have never been taken prisoner in the first place. Gotta admit, if she's Jamie, she's probably right. At least two-handed Jamie, right? She would have at least tried to escape. And that's the, exactly the role the mountain is taking on here. In this one, she struggles to fight off a group of old women. But imagine if, she, if the mountain, undead mountain, were unleashed in the sept. What could they do? I don't know that they could do anything other than run away or die. As part of her confession, she speaks of her weakness as a woman and how it drives her to sleep with men to ensure they protect her. So consider that aspect. We've talked about that a lot in this chapter. Of course, she doesn't admit that Jamie's one of them, but she does name others like Lancel and the Kettleblacks. Part of this is he's telling the High Sparrow what he wants to hear, admitting to at least punishable of crimes. But there's a lot of truth to that point that she made that she did partly sleep with the Kettleblacks in order to bind them to her. With the mountain, she has a loyal, unparalleled brute who doesn't require that to stay loyal. She doesn't have to sleep with him to get him to do her bidding. And unlike other men too, they won't balk at the worst of her commands. So this is real dark. <laughs> I mean, I know you all don't need to be told that about the mountain, but the thematic resonance, the symbolism here of Jamie being replaced by an undead mountain is just 
overwhelmingly powerful and strong. Strong, Robert Strong. There's also vibes of Ariane here, Princess in the Tower, but it's much more skillfully handled or, or ruthlessly handled by the High Sparrow. There is no opportunity for what Ariane did. Ariane managed to finally convince one of her servants to take a letter for her. Cersei, there was n- no crack in the facade for Cersei to squeak through here. No opportunity for that. The High Sparrow, way too clever, way too on top of things. Let's be aware of what actually she's on trial for. She will be on trial for regicide, conspiring to kill Robert. Lancel confessed to that, so there's a strong witness to that one. Incest, which is, of course, relationship with Jamie. That's, of course, from Stannis' letter and other places. Deicide, which is almost, she laughs at that one. I almost laughed at that one, even having read this book enough times, bajillion times, whatever, because of the murdering of the high, previous High Septon, which Osney confessed to. And then bearing children who were not fathered by Robert um, while married to Robert. Again, that's also from the, related to the Stannis thing. She's not going to be in trial for any of these fornications because she's already confessed to those. And She's not on trial for a lot of things that we as readers think she's probably should be on trial for, at least she deserves, like killing poor Malara Heatherspoon, having the blue bard tortured. I mean, we don't need to list them all. There's an awful lot of them. It's a confounding set of circumstances because we want justice to be done, right? But we don't want this version of justice necessarily because the thing Cersei is being put on trial for aren't necessarily the things we as human beings would judge her the most harshly for. I think some of these other things we named are far worse, like sleeping with her brother. Sure, well, that's gross. But is it evil? Is it the kind of thing you should be executed for? Eh, I don't think so. But killing a young girl, torturing an innocent musician, those are very high crimes. Those are the things that you should perhaps be locked up forever for. But she's not on trial for those things. So as readers, we're struggling with well, is it good enough? Is this justice because she deserves other things? She's getting going, other things are unpunished? Well, maybe, but not this walk of shame, right? It's, we'll talk about the walk more when we get to it specifically, because while she, there's a lot of pages of her just walking and thinking about it, and we'll be right there with her. S- setting the stage, keep in mind that it's another example of a punishment that does not fit the crime. It's a punishment engineered for a woman, not for justice, right? Just like is as fitting as, and as, as common with Cersei chapters, this chapter had the most feedback of, for the week, and uh, you understand why, given all the rabbit holes and various different ways you can approach this chapter. Stefan B. points out another factor that isn't torture, but is torturous. That is, Cersei is probably having alcohol withdrawals while in prison. That's a good point, and that makes it somewhat similar to what her brother was going through. Sophia says, I mentioned it briefly, but she wants us to not underestimate the dehumanization of not being allowed to wash, of just being dirty and filthy all the time, and how that breaks you down, especially in concert with all the other tactics like food and it being cold and all that. Kate Crone says, any parent in here should agree. When the Septa tells her to confess and she will sleep like a newborn babe, ma'am, you're waking her up every hour. That is how newborns sleep. <laughs> well said, Kate. I can't say that from experience, but I've heard it from enough parents. Sounds, sounds like the, the High Sparrow, they got it backwards a bit. A couple of y'all pointed to the line, 
any God in a storm that Cersei has that line. And it's, it, ref, it's a, it refers to a similar concept to the phrase, there's no fox, there's no atheists in foxholes, which is when things are desperate, people will take a hold of anything. They'll pray to any God, anyone that's willing to help, any shred of hope, they'll offer a prayer. And that gives people Euron vibes because that is not just Euron because he, I am the storm. I mean, yes, that too. But because Euron's plan is to seemingly is to make the world so desperate that he is the thing they must turn to as the power source, the one thing that can make the pain go away. Very dark vision of Euron's plan for the world, but that does seem to be where it lies. Ah, another super chat sneaking in here from Lord Commander Namian Darklin, head of our King's Guard. What is your guess on how the Sept Explosions slash Tyrell Downfall will play out from the show version? Will the Faith go down, fighting them in mutual destruction? Yeah, I, I'm torn on that. I, I When we went through Clash of Kings, and I think a little bit in other spots as well, we talked about how the fact that the Pyromancer's Guild is pretty much directly under the Sept, which is very... <laughs> ominous and telling placement. There's tunnels down there and it's just right under the Sept. It's on the same hill. It's the base of, of the hill and the Sept is on the top of it. Plus, it's so fitting with Cersei's parallels to Magor the Cruel because Magor the Cruel torched the church on the other hill. There's Rhaenys' hill and, and Visenya's hill and <laughs> there, was a, there was a Sept on one of them. It's burned and now there's a Sept on the other one and it may be burned as well. So, whoa, I think I'm really close to 50-50. I know that's kind of a cheap answer, but I definitely think she's going to be brutal towards the, the faith. She's going to come after them hardcore without a lot of subtlety, I think. Maybe some subtlety, but I don't think she's going to be hiding her intentions. I think she wants to, going to want to kill them. I think she's going to be more like Magor. Being tricky didn't work out too great for her, so she's going to be a little more direct. And it's going to in include her going after the Tyrells. And I think her being more direct and straightforward with her means might actually work for her first time for a while, not, not in the long run. What great chapter placement this has. So much of this Cersei chapter is based around getting an open slot in the Kingsguard. When she was in charge, she simply broke precedent, right? She kicked someone out and just added a new one, but she can't do that now. She probably wishes she could do that again. It would work out pretty well in, in her mind. And of course, the guy she kicked out of the Kingsguard is the one who's up next with his first ever chapter, Barrist in the Bolt. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Queen's Guard. 63 years bold, a.k.a. while the dragon's away, the harpy will play. And here we see another reference to the number 63. In case you missed it, that's how old Jar Jar Martin was when this book came out. Consider that this chapter contains a lot of Barristan's thoughts on aging, his laments, his regrets, his anxieties and realize how personal this chapter might be to George. Like, he was reflecting his own internal uh, thoughts on it all. The name Barrett in the Bold is a major name in the history of George R. R. Martin as a writer, too. George himself recaps his second story 
ever uh, featuring the character Prince Relor, which he wrote as a second-year student at Northwestern. And the quote here is featuring the character Prince Relor. My exile prince finds himself in the Dothrak Empire, where he joins Baron of the Bloody Blade to fight the winged demons who slew his grandsire, Barristan the Bold. <laughs> so George has had the name Barristan the Bold around since he was like 20-something. So that's cool, right? That gives Barristan a highly unique quality that we're unlikely to see in any other POV. Several, really. In some ways, it's like, ah, this Barristan, like, is he really that interesting? But yeah, I think he is. And this meta stuff just makes it even more interesting. Even more interesting, perhaps, that this POV is a result of the Miranese not and or five-year gap. After all, I'm not sure this was always in the plan for him to be a POV. Certainly some of the parts of his arc we're going to see play out. Those might have been part of his plan from the beginning, but to make him a POV and I don't know, I don't, I'm skeptical that that was ever part of George's plans. Recall the first time you ever saw him at all, meaning on TV or early in a Game of Thrones. Those are really the only two options unless you started somewhere in the middle. When he was teasing Renly, calling him a prancing jack and apes, he, that's how he came off initially. He was like a living legend, but you know, not really didn't really stand out too much. But then he did stand out because he was the one guy backing Ned Stark when it came to the issue of sending assassins after a pregnant Danny. Ever since then, you have some re some respect for him, if not a lot of respect for him for things like that. With that in mind, what did you think when you saw him as a POV character for the first time? Were you surprised? Were you like, oh, that makes sense? Or were you immediately tantalized by all the things he might know. That's kind of where I was when I started thinking about it. I was like, whoa, this guy knows, this guy knew Rhaegar. This guy knew Ares. This guy knew Arthur and Ashara Dane. He was knighted by Egg. Like, the things this dude knows that he may or may not get around to thinking about. After all, George didn't have Ned Stark think about a lot of things that he could have had him think about that he didn't. So maybe that's how it's going to go with Barristan. But, this guy knew Duncan the Tall. He was in the War of Nine Penny Kings. He killed Maelys the Monstrous himself. He did the defiance of Duskendale. That one he actually does think about a little bit. Even if you're not excited about Barristan as a person, I think you see what I'm saying here. The things he could know and things he does know, well, there's just a lot of potential treasure there. However, I'm very wary, especially because it kind of happened on TV, that he's the human version of George's interruption trick. Right in the middle of giving us a bunch of lore, right in the middle of Barristan telling us deep, dark secrets that would be really awesome for us to know, the dude gets killed off. That is entirely possible. It might be exactly what happens. I mean, he is in a dangerous job that he's unsuited for. Man, his regular job is really dangerous too. So, and the pale mare is going around. I mean, goodness gracious. Uh, poor Barristan. It's no easy thing to take Danny's place, but he's dutiful and he's going to do the best job he can. That's where we're going to start with a much different version of the firing he received from Cersei that started this whole journey. You are the queen's man, said Resnack, Mo Resnack. He silently corrects himself to point out he will always be her man. An immediate strike against theories entertained by such as myself that he will join with Aegon instead. This chapter shows that he very much is devoted to Danny. He's very much devoted to keeping children alive, which is something that Danny does too. So he very much respects that about her. He's seen a lot of kings, a few who are almost kings like Rhaegar, 
So his devotion to her is very meaningful because it comes with a certain level of understanding of what it takes to be good at this job. There's certain things he's not aware of, but he's still, you got to give him some credit for his experience. I wouldn't despise that at all. Shout out to Barristan. The dude does not even a little bit seem to consider her being a queen and not a king. Doesn't even blink at that. Well, she's a woman. It doesn't occur to him, really. He's like, yep, well, she's in charge. She's a great person. doesn't matter what her gender is. He doesn't even think of that. He just does it. So I, I, I like that. That's cool. Here's another thing that's really important. In the Dance of the Dragons, for example, the actual Dance of the Dragons, the book for which this book is named, <laughs> Kingsguard also faced a similar difficulty that Barristan is facing now, meaning normally their job is difficult, but they don't, have to worry too much about whose side they're on. Generally, that part at least is straightforward. But when there's a civil war, or when there's multiple crowns on multiple heads, they have to choose. Barrison, however, has already chosen. He's finding himself with troubles that resemble a combination of what we saw in Eddard and Jamie's chapters. Those are two really strong parallels to him. Ned, a man with a heart of a, or rather, yeah, both of them are men with hearts of protectors, lost in politics that they're not really suited for that they don't like either. They're trained more to fight than to administrate, and they're faced with competing oaths. That's a big, strong comparison between Barrison and Jamie. Jamie and Barrison were both incredibly gifted from a very early age. Barrison's going to think about Arsh, uh, Ashara Dane later, not in this chapter, but that puts us in mind of Ned Stark in a different way, even though he himself never thought of her. <laughs> it's kind of strange, right? Barrison thinks of Ashara more often than Ned. Whereas Jamie sees direct contradictions and very firm oaths he took, right? He sees how fulfilling one oath would violate another. Barristan sees similar things in that he sees in interpretations and uncertainty because he's not even sure what the rules are. He's sort of just going by the rules of Westerosi Kingsguard. In his mind, that gives him a little bit of leeway, which is important because he's a guy that doesn't believe in going against the rules. So he has to, in his mind, it's important for him to see a path, a legal path forward or it just makes him really uncomfortable and, and unwilling to act. Here's one of the important thoughts he has along those lines that I want to build off of. If the queen had commanded me to protect his dar, I would have had no choice but to obey. But Daenerys Targaryen had never established a proper queen's guard, even for herself, nor issued any commands in respect to her consort. The world was simpler when I had a Lord Commander to decide such matters, Selmy reflected. Now I am the Lord Commander, and it is hard to know which path is right. This is the same simplicity that Jamie refused to accept. He accepted it for a while. It made him cynical. And it's, this, it's also the simplicity that Brienne would never accept. The world isn't this simple. I mean, she thinks she did think it was simple for a while, but she very quickly realized it's not. It's something that Jamie and Brienne went through together. Barrison never had this kind of awakening because his life never fell into that form of chaos. He did have that simplicity for a long time. But that simplicity is a retreat. It allowed him to, as he himself thinks on, stand and do nothing while Ares did awful things. And he's not gone so far as to think he should have acted, but he's at least questioning that. Jamie, of course, realizes now that he did have to act. And he no longer hates himself for acting, even though the world does. And we appreciate that too. I think a lot of us are like, yeah, Jamie, you did the right thing. Your oath was not more important than saving so many lives. After all, Ares was going to burn the whole city down. 
you wonder if Selmy would have let that happen. I guess he would have. And then he would have either died along with them or had a whole different set of regrets. But I'm pretty sure he would have regretted it because he's not some evil guy. He couldn't have just been like, oh, well, what could I have done? It was my duty to let him burn the city down. Everyone has a point at which they can't hide behind their job anymore. And Barristan is having those thoughts in a lot of different ways. And it's interesting because it's usually not people that are this set in their habits who have been living a certain way for so long. It's harder to change the older you get sometimes. Not, it's not true for everyone. It's not true for all circumstances. Basically, the longer you're doing something, the harder it is to do something different. This is coming to not just a new set of jobs, but a new set of roles, but in a completely unfamiliar place. Barrison is in Slaver's Bay, and there's so much about it that he doesn't understand, that makes him feel alien. He can't even get the terms right. You, you feel like some of that stubbornness, like he refuses to say you're magnificent. He's like, nah, I'm just going to keep saying grace. It's a neat little verbal reminder of these habits that are hard to break of who he is, who he was, and how that's, that's kind of an anchor for him. If we turn to what he's observing, you know, because he is a great observer, although he's not great at observing certain things, there's other things he's fantastic at. He's got so much practice at it. One of these things is, is, is judging the political situation. So by his, with, with his thoughts and with our own insights, there's a lot going on we can point to. Just as Skahaz was sacked, we saw that before he was removed. Hisdar makes a mistake and tries to point at one of his cousins over the Unsullied. And the Unsullied are like, are you kidding me? Don't forget, we're not slaves. We, you can't do that. We follow Daenerys, not the crown of Marine. What that means is the Unsullied are kind of just off the board right now. No one's going to mess with them because why would you poke that bear? But they're not interested in following someone other than Daenerys for the most part. So they're kind of just there. And Missande has also been kind of cast aside. And Hisdar finds himself in actually a pretty bad spot. And it's another reason for us to be suspicious of the possibility that he's the one that tried to remove Danny. It's not going that well for him without Danny because Young Kai is an ally, but they're not friends. Remember what I said last time about Yunkai is now the number one slave city, and they like that. They don't. They they would be fine with Marine being destroyed if they're the ones to destroy it. They don't have any loyalty to Marine. They have loyalty to their way of life, and Daenerys is throwing that off. If they get rid of her, they don't really care that much what happens to Marine as long as it doesn't interfere with their way of life in some other way, right? As long as it doesn't start new problems for them, but. Make no mistake, they could see all the people of Marine suffer and die horribly and, and they wouldn't blink at it. There's no loyalty, no love loss there. It's all just opportunity. It's all power games. It's greed. How many different people in this set of chapters talk about sacking Marine? The Yunkai, Bloodbeard, who was in the employee of the Yunkai, the Volantines, <laughs> Greyjoy's sort of, you know, I mean, there's just, Everyone's coming to destroy this place. That's what they want. They want to loot it. There's so much wealth in there. That's what they want. Politics is all about that. And that's why Scott, what Scott has is saying is so important and why Barristan is willing to talk to him. Because even though Barristan sees this as exactly the kind of business he doesn't want to get involved in, he thinks of Varus and Littlefinger and it just turn, really turns him off. But he knows he has to do it. He's, he's in this role, even though he doesn't like it, he has to do it. Someone has to do it. Skahaz is not wrong about a few things. One thing that separates him from the others is that he makes some points that are hard to ignore that aren't necessarily self-serving. For example, when he mentions the Volantines, they're coming and they would want to sack the city and then it's a ticking clock like so many other things. This window of opportunity is very small. So does it even matter what Skahaz's 
ulterior motives are if he's right that the city is in danger of being entirely wiped out? Like, who cares what Skaha's political goals are if the alternative is everyone dies? So I think Barrison starts to come around to that. So even if we're wary of what Skaha's real goals are, we might have to accept that Skaha's and the poisoning and things like that, he might be kind of scummy, but he might be right. If Barrison's going to twiddle his thumbs while the Volunteers get closer and, and stand on principle, well, again, we get to Ned Stark's situation where, no, man, you have to sacrifice some honor here. We're all going to die <laughs> and die horribly. They're going to enslave us. It's going to be really, really bad. So, man, don't be unwilling to do evil to prevent bigger evil. And that's the crux of the question with Ares. Jamie did, quote unquote, evil. It's evil in the minds of many because he, he's a Kingsguard breaking his oath, slaying the king he swore to protect. You and I might not call that evil because of the circumstances, but in a vacuum in Westeros, a Kingsguard killing the king without any other information, that's bad, right? Doing bad to create good is, is a conundrum, but it's the same thing we're faced with here in this chapter. I think it's brilliantly put together. Barristan laments not acting before as he's simultaneously angry at people like Jamie Lannister who did act. And he's being called to do as Jamie Lannister did. He's got to get his feet dirty, his hands dirty. He's got to play the Game of Thrones. He's going to have to do things that he doesn't necessarily think are good or else worse things will happen. And he can't just be sitting like, ah, I couldn't have done anything to stop it. That's super fascinating to me, all the ins and outs of what Barristan is faced with and the conflict here. And, and some people out there find Marine not interesting. And when you look at things like this, I just don't see it. This is super interesting to me. <laughs> and beyond the onset of the Volunteens, it's worse than that because the Volunteens are a ticking clock, but he points out, look, are the, are, are the young Kai going to wait for the Volunteens? Aren't they going to make, are they, aren't they going to act sooner than that? And the Pale Mare, too. That's, that's another ticking clock. So when Skaz is like, look, man, we got to do this now, I say ignore his political goals because this other stuff is clear and present and he's right about it because we have independent verification elsewhere. He's right about the Volunteers. We know that's true. He's right about Young Kai being greedy and considering uh, and arguing to storm Marine now. We see proof of that. So yeah, super, super confusing, but super interesting, super complex. Under the radar factor here too, this is really neat. Skahas is wearing a cat mask and he says... Cats go everywhere. No one ever looks at them. And it's very reminiscent of Arya choosing to be cat of the canals. The kindly man says, yeah, Bravos is full of cats. One more will not be noticed. As it may be a little hint that Skaz is responsible for the poisoning, is he calls the confectioner the poisoner. He calls them a cat's paw. <laughs> His dar's cat's paw. It's like, maybe it was your cat's paw. And again, since we compare Skaz to Littlefinger a couple different ways, I will remind you, uh, I don't want to get too deep into the locusts again, but chaos could have been the point, right? That's the kind of thing Littlefinger would do. Put poison in there and just let them argue over who it was intended for. He didn't, maybe he didn't have a target in mind at all. He's just like, hey, I'm going to put this in here and they're going to all go crazy trying to figure out who put it there and figure out what the motives were. By not having a motive or by having a motive to cause confusion and chaos, 
Here's a fantastic quote that well describes and summarizes a lot of what I've been saying and how that applies to Barristan, as well as the series as a whole. This is a really good one. The best of them overcame their flaws, did their duty, and died with their swords in their hands. The worst, the worst were those who played the Game of Thrones. Well, Barry, you're playing it now too. I don't hold it against you because as I just said, you're forced into it and you got to do what you got to do. But let's not have the game play you. Don't be played by the game. Play the game. Don't let it play you. More importantly, though he's not playing the game by choice, the experience is going to change him nonetheless. After all, playing the Game of Thrones, playing these dirty politics, it, it changes who you are. It, it corrupts you. Barrison sees that, and that's one of the things that he's wary of. But like Corin Halfhand said, sacrificing your honor is a small price to pay when it's the stakes are this high, when it's the lives of so many, the honor of so many. One person's honor is nothing against the honor or the lives of so many others. It has to be a willing sacrifice. If you're really Kingsguard, if you're really a knight, if you're someone who lives up to the oaths of knighthood, that is, heck, it's, it's written down that way. You're supposed to be willing to do that. I'm not saying everyone should do that, but if you take the oath, huh, then you should live up to it, right? And notice too just how alone Barristan is, right? Danny's gone, and when he goes up to the, Danny's apartments, it's kind of like a ghost town. It's even basically phrased that way. And the one ghost who's still there with him is Masande. And it's a really nice relationship. They're not very much alike. Their backgrounds are different, but they have a lot in common nonetheless. She's like 11. He's 63. <laughs> he really likes her. He, he's fond of her and she seems to respect him and trust him. And why not? He's a good dude. It's a kind of a lonely moment there when he's sitting on the terrace having dinner by himself. But it's also awesome because the man, the description of Marine from the top of the pyramid. It's incredible. Uh, we, when we saw it on TV, it was well worth putting up with some of the other things that we weren't so happy with on TV because that was beautiful. Uh, another person who could have been with Selmy is Belwis, but he's dying. Uh, thankfully, we know he recovers. That's great. But it, it comes with other news. The, 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 the Thraki are gone. Uh, the Unsullied we already talked about. They're not participating right now. Uh, but the Dothraki went to search for Daenerys. That makes sense. And it's good, but it's another factor in Barristan's isolation here because he knew they were at least allies. But as another factor for his dar, just look at how weak he's become. Uh, he doesn't have any soldiers, hardly. He doesn't really have... We haven't seen Galaza Galare in a while. Uh, we haven't... He seems to have the pit fighters, and that's about it. So it's another reason why it's like, well, would Hizdar really remove Danny if this is where he's going to find himself with very few soldiers, with Yunkai at his throat and all these other factors that really aren't going his way? Uh, unless he's just too dumb to have seen this coming, which is possible. Let's not underestimate dumminess. After all, we're about to be in a Victorian chapter and we just had a Cersei chapter where all kinds of bad decisions happen. Now, make no mistake, Neither Cersei nor Hisdar are dumb. They just are capable of making mistakes. Victorian, he's dumb. Not just that, in terms of soldiers, Hisdar is well, a low-key factor here. I think his wealth took a massive hit. Remember what his big money-making play was? Buy all the fighting pits on the cheap since the fighting pits are closed and they don't make any money, so they're probably super cheap. Then harangue Danny till she reopens them and make a killing. Well, all of that happened except for the killing didn't go the way he wanted. <laughs> the wrong people were killed in the fighting pits. And that's odd because that's how fighting pits work. People die in them. But now people are like, eh, I don't want to go to the fighting pits. 
after what happened to Stampede, all this other stuff, plus the Pale Mare and everything. Yeah, people aren't going to the pit fights anymore. That's what is stated in like a one-sentence line here. And so his dar probably is taking a big bath on all that expense, on, on the money he spent to get the fighting pits going again. He's just, it's a loss, a huge loss probably. That might affect his standing amongst the noble families if they're aware of, of his losses, if they're as substantial as I think they are. For all I know, he's still just so absurdly wealthy, it doesn't matter. And other things haven't gone well in the city besides that. The markets are empty, right? People are just kind of hunkered down. Maybe they're probably because of fear, worried about the disease and the siege and all that other stuff. So yeah, that's not good for the economy, right? So a lot of nobles are suffering, isn't the right word, but losing money. Over 200 people killed by what happened in the pit, thanks to Drogon and the stampeding. Three times as many wounded, uh, mostly by burns, many by burns. Interestingly, too, let's talk about the dragon. Let's talk about Drogon and Barristan's views of all that, because, of course, he witnessed it. Danny's hair caught on fire. Barristan sees that, but we don't get much of a hint of that from her chapter. She, it's just hot for her. The phrase to keep in mind is furnace wind. When Danny is hit by a furnace wind in her chapter, that phrase comes up, that's when her hair catches fire. That same phrase is going to come up in poor Quentin's chapter. And it's the signal that the furnace wind, it's the blast of the dragon's breath. The furnace is the dragon's gullet and the wind is them breathing out. But let's consider this. How awful would Barristan feel about what just happened in the previous chapter with the mountain being named to the Kingsguard. Good Lord, talk about an abomination that would disgust him. First of all, he hates the fact that Tywin had those kids killed. And Gregor was one of the ones that had them killed. Remember what Barristan thinks about even Robert? He's like, if Robert Baratheon had smiled over those bodies of those princelings, I would have killed him myself. So he can't be a fan of Gregor Clegane, who was the actual murderer and rapist of one of those. He killed a prince and a princess. So this guy in undead form is now in the Kingsguard? Are you kidding? <sighs> Maybe Barristan won't live long enough to find out about that, but that's not a good thing either. Hisdar offered Skahaz the ancient and honorable office, in his words, of Warden of the River with a charge of all the ferries, dredges, and irrigation ditches along the Skahazadon for 50 leagues. That sounds like an important job, but it also, from a noble, sounds like a demotion. And Nina has a nice catch here. It reminds of Tyrion being put in charge of all the drains and cisterns at Casterly Rock. Also, maybe worth noting that Barristan, uh, as Barristan points out, the choice of where a Kingsguard serves is pretty much up to the monarch. That was something that was very unclear before. It's been debated. It's like some kings have their Kingsguard guard their children. Some of them have them guard their queen and other people. Some king guard, uh, some are like Ares where it's pretty much all guarding the king only and not much else. Although that obviously changed by the time Rhaegar started to take more control. It actually makes perfect sense when you really get down to it like that because it's always the case, right? The king just does what the king wants and no one can stop him unless you get to these real extreme cases like Jamie stopping Ares. 2020 vibes in this one. A lot of y'all pointed that out with and Marine with markets and fighting pits being empty. No one's out in the streets. People have masks. <laughs> There's a plague. Yeah, mm, too real, huh? Barrington makes a mistake historical error, which is oddly seems on purpose because Tyrion mostly corrects him in his chapter two from now. Not specifically corrects him, but 
points out that dragons can be killed through the eyes, through like bolts and things like that. That's the that's one of their vulnerable spots. Meanwhile, Barristan says none of Aegon and his sister's dragons were ever shot down, which definitely happened. Meraxes was shot down by a bolt to the eye. So hmm, Bar- I guess Barristan just forgot or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess he just didn't know his history that well. Yeah, yeah. Ever. I mean, Guinevere Greenstone says, shouts out sort of what I shouted out at the beginning, which is that Barrison just switches to the concept of Queensguard without missing a beat. He doesn't try to insert any, well, she's a girl, so does that change the rules? No, it's just she's in charge. She's the top dog. She's, that's it. Duskendale episode, we've got that. That exists. Defiance of Duskendale was one we did not that long ago, four, five, six months maybe. We also did White Cloak Turned is Still White. I think during Val Arboretus, I'm mostly going to be focused on why Barristan won't switch sides because we've theorized elsewhere where he might. And if you're interested in that, that's where you should go. The White Cloak is still white. White Cloak Turned is still white is the name. Nina's suggestion for how to avoid all this conflict and this might be exactly how things go is that Barristan just could just die before this conflict even arises, before he's faced with a decision. That would somewhat reflect what happens on TV. Uh, three of the last four episodes are going to have Barristan chapters. He's actually the most frequent POV starting like now till the rest of the way. John only has two. Tyrion has only two more. Uh, Danny only has one. Yeah, so it's kind of neat. The Iron Suitor. An undrowned red priest comes in handy, aka Victorian rearmed. Of course, very punny there. I couldn't help myself. Yep. On the heels of the end of Theon's arc in the book, we get his uncle, whom we haven't seen since he consented to Euron's command to take the Iron Fleet to Slaver's Bay, but did not consent to stealing Daenerys for him. He wants her for himself, hence the name of this chapter. That took place at the Shield Islands about two-thirds of the way through Feast for Crows, meaning the last time we saw Victorian. All this time since, he's been sailing, minus a few stopovers. As he explains in this chapter, they're waiting at the Isle of Cedars for the rest of the fleet because he split it into three groups to make traveling easier. And this is the rendezvous point. This is a clever chapter, not because Victorian is clever, because he obviously isn't, because you can like him very easily. I mean, dislike him very easily, (laughs) perhaps more easily than any other POV character. Not any character, but POV character. But this one is filled with haunting creepiness and supernatural terror with some particularly excellent and cool world building. It's the chapter where he has us deviate from the normal POV view of everything. It's a narrative style for just a minute or two. It's unusual because that's a normal narrative style, but it's abnormal for these books. So it really stands out. As usual, he asks a lot of fascinating questions about the nature of the world and various superstitions. It's one of the things I really enjoy about Victorian's chapters, as I've said before. He's one of the worst possible candidates to actually provide useful answers to the questions that he poses but he's one of the only people that even poses these questions. It's great that he asked them in the first place. And as usual, the feel of the chapter is brilliantly established right away. Grief appeared alone at daybreak, her black sails stark against the pale pink skies of morning. Good catch by Sophia, who points out the colors are flipped with Makoro himself because Victorian notices that his red robes have gone pink and he has black skin. And remember, y'all, This isn't like the euphemistic black that we describe brown-skinned people in the real world quite often. Makoro's skin is black, charred, like actual black. Pink and black is the perfect match here. 
It's also neat to, that the ship's name also reflects so much about what's going on in this chapter. This chapter is dark. I mean, that's fairly normal for Ironborn chapters, but man, it's dark in ways that are so unusual, like in ways that are funny almost. Like this guy can't even enjoy the beauty of this island. A lot of you all commented on how almost funny it is or is funny that he's like, this water's too clear. This sun's too nice. These plants are too beautiful. Like, <laughs> like this guy's so dark that he can't even recognize beauty. It's, to him, it's unsettling. <laughs> Beauty is unsettling. Like, whoa. <laughs> that is such a different worldview. And it's a re- another piece of disturbing evidence that the Ironborn are just a culture apart. And there's a lot of evidence of that in this chapter, as if we didn't already have it well before this chapter. What's amazing, too, here is the way this chapter does so much while making it clear that Victorian can't possibly succeed in his plan. I mean, it's a matter of whether he'll survive or not, not whether he'll succeed and not whether he'll survive. Like, how long will he survive? <laughs> There's an outside chance he becomes like one of Danny's people, not necessarily by choice. Let's talk this through. The most obvious reason he can't snatch and grab Danny is that, well, she's not there <laughs> on the Dothraki Sea or something. She's not snatchable, in other words. Not only that, even if she was in Marine, good luck getting inside the walls and past the Unsullied and all that. Like, uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a lot taken for granted here. Secondly, this wizard that he fishes from the sea, Makoro, who has very quickly earned your trust, sees Daenerys as the savior of the world, and Makoro, being as devout as they come from what we have seen, is definitely going to turn on Victarion if he has to, to save Daenerys. But my thinking is he's not going to let that come to chance, that he's already, from the minute he got on this ship, he's already working on that plan in part because he's probably seen a lot of it in the flames. Obviously, he wasn't looking into the flames while he was floating adrift in the Gulf of, Gulf of Grief. Hey, this ship is named after it. How about that? <laughs> I just realized that just now. It's also possible he can control Victorian. I think we alluded to this before when we discussed Melisandre's control over Mance Raider via the ruby on his wrist. Well, we've considered this conceptually before. Glass candles are like frozen fire. They're focused version of flame reading because they are fire made into stone. That's what obsidian basically is, right? Similar concept here, maybe? Instead of a ruby on his wrist, there's there's this ritual using raw fire with sorcery as well. It's certainly blood magic. I don't know whether this control factor is there or not. This This is just a theory. But we're looking for ways that Makoro can hold sway over Victorian, given what's coming. And, well, sorcery certainly seems to be one of his options. He's certainly got the abilities, even if we don't know precisely what he can do. And this gives us a really interesting window into things we've seen before in Danny's arc. I mean, this is a lot of Miriam Azdur coming up here, right? Sorcery on a wound that's infected on this brutal, bloody, enslaving warrior guy. Yeah, I mean, what Victorian did to the Shield Islanders and everyone he runs into on the way here, pretty similar to Drogo and the Lazarine or just Talisars in general. Let's uh, jump ahead to the actual narrative change here, the creepy quote. The Iron Captain was not seen again that day, but as the hours passed, the crew of his Iron Victory reported hearing the sound of wild laughter coming from the captain's cabin. Laughter deep and dark and mad. 
And when Longwater Pike and Wolf One-Eye tried the cabin door, they found it barred. Later, singing was heard, a strange high wailing song in a tongue the maester said was high Valyrian. That was when the monkeys left the ship, screeching as they leapt into the water. Boy, that's creepy. Damn. (laughs) I love that scene. Consider just how many little details are here. It's another, it's it's not, maybe not Cersei level of rabbit hole because these magic rabbit holes, you can only go so far. In some ways you can go farther because there's more theories, but you have less certainty that you're working with anything that might come to pass. Uh, It's so much more theoretical. But this wild laughing, right? That's part of what they hear. Laughter deep and dark and mad. Who's, where's that laughter coming from? Victorian hates laughter. That's established in this chapter. Is it Makoro? Is the dusky woman? No, I don't think so. I mean, she probably can't even make sounds like that. So what is going on? Singing too. Victorian's not singing. <laughs> He's, he doesn't actually say I'm not a singer, but the dude doesn't laugh. And he also was like, no, I don't dance. You know, I don't, talking about being made to dance, you know, that was meant to be poetic, but so many questions here. What is going on in that cabin? If you're one of the Ironborn sailors and you know Victorian doesn't laugh, you know how important he is to their survival, you know how superstitious they all are, this must freak them out so bad. The monkey's leaving? Well, we'll speak to that more in a minute too, but it just really is a beautiful, dark way to cap this all off as, as if, the, if the animals are scared. And it's setting the final paragraph too. Also, there's a blood red sun, the sea of black ink, black and red. It's very Targaryen-esque. I mean, that's what Makora would look like if his robes hadn't gone pink. He would be black and red also, blackened and burnt, charred. He's got the flame tattoos on his face. Nina writes, similar along the lines I was saying how Makoro is just enacting his plan to get to Daenerys right away. That's part of what we're seeing. That's why he heals Victorian's arm. Maybe it's a means of controlling him, but mostly I think it's more direct as a way for him to survive and to reach his goals. He knows Victorian's going to Danny. He wants to get to Danny. Might as well hop a ride. But if Victorian dies, if if his hand festers and he Makoro's then left at the whims of this very superstitious crew who have been calling for his death. So very clearly, Makoro doesn't want that. Makoro needs Victorian to live, at least for now. The horn, too. He, he, Victor, who knows what Makoro has seen in his flames already? Because he's already seen things that have come to pass. So we know he's particularly accurate at interpreting these things. And he, he knew Victorian's uh, would be there. He gives other accurate readings later. It's going to be a, a pattern but we can point to it now. We don't have to wait for the pattern to be established later in the book. We already know it exists, so we can look at it immediately. Is he maybe wary of the horn? Is he tricking Victorian in with regards to that? We'll talk about that more next time because the horn isn't actually part of this chapter. But Makoro is probably already aware it's there. Uh, the description of his hand bears some resemblance to what happens to poor Erea Targaryen as we see in Fire and Blood with the crackling and the smoke coming out of it. Unfortunately for her, it was her entire body and not just her arm. Joe asked the question, how does Makoro know all these things? Is it because he knew where to look? Because obviously he wasn't looking in the flames while sitting in the water. So he, he, while he was on the ship with Tyrion, I guess, or even before that, that far in the past, he saw this far in the future. Again, there's Jamie vibes. 
wounded hand, severe infection, dominating cruel sibling with a royal title, mute companion, right? Dusky woman, ill in pain. Pretty cool. Again, it's not easy to see that parallel, but once you do see it, it jumps out at you. And that's, that's brilliant. And thanks to Rolling Knight, who added another couple of connection points between them that even both Jamie and Victorian threatened to kill the maester who said, I might have to cut your, in Jamie's case, arm off because the hand was already gone. And in Victorian's case, Maester Kern was like, I'm gonna have to cut your hand off. And then both times they got threatened with, well, you cut that off, I kill you. Speaking of poor Kerwin, whew, this guy really went through it, didn't he? And this is, I think there's a lot of symbolism here. Like this is, this is how science and rationality and the slightest instinct for a man to be even a little bit feminine. This is what happens in this environment to that. Um, you want to be a little bit artistic. You want songs. You want music. You want science. You want learning. This is the worst place in the world to be. What happens to those things in this, in this scenario? They get beaten, raped, distrusted, despite them being the aggressors. Victorians, okay, this is so, okay, we just went through a couple of Cersei's most amazing, how could she possibly think this moment? But Victorians blows hers out of the water. Here's just my favorite one. And there's several. Okay, picture this. You're sitting there brooding over the possibility that someone poisoned your hand. The dusky woman, meanwhile, is wrapping your hand. <laughs> You're thinking, this maester, hmm, he's got motivation to poison me while your sex slave is working on your hand. He thinks to himself, Euron's gifts are always poisoned while one of them is wrapping his hand, while he's wondering who might be poisoning him. He thinks poison is a woman's weapon while a woman is wrapping his hand, <laughs> which he is worried is poisoned. And he, at no point does he consider that it might be her. <laughs> it doesn't dawn on him even a little. <laughs> There's like four massive clues <laughs> that it could be her and he doesn't think of it. Now, to be clear, I don't think she's poisoning him. Like, I don't see that. I don't, it's for the same reason Makoro doesn't want Victorian to die right now. If, if, if she dies, if, if Victorian dies, she's in big trouble because the rest of the crew would treat her even worse. As bad as he treats her, they would probably be worse and she's probably smart enough to realize that. Let alone the possibility that there's something else going on here that she's a spy for Euron. There's a theory out there that Euron can skin change and see through her eyes. That's a little too far for me, but I acknowledge that theory enough to present it. Also, just the way he frames it all. To them, to him, they're all just sorcerers. The maester is a sorcerer to him. Science is sorcery to him. He doesn't, he doesn't really make the distinction between what Makoro's doing and what ma uh, the maesters are doing. To them, it's all forms of magic. Also, let alone, going back to the wound in his hand, let alone the possibility that he just doesn't understand what's happening. Like he, The fact that he's pinning it on poison in the first place is kind of dumb. right? He's like, why, why hasn't my hand healed? That's just how it works. His hand hasn't healed is because it festered and it got infected. And that's how things work, right? That can happen. That is a, a, a valid possibility in this world and in the real world. So to him, though, it has to be sorcery. He can't, he can't conceive of normal. And this is something that a couple of y'all pointed out to. The uh, Archmaester Rennie in particular pointed out the, in the iBooks edition, there's a quote from George that he says, Victorian's too dumb to realize that this might just be regular infection. <laughs> so even George weighs in. 
And Victorian is aware of the Volantines as well. The, the picture of the Volantine fleet and the danger they pose is a really interesting thing because we get presented with just a little bit of detail in several different chapters that we have to pull it all together to make sense of it. And Victorian actually had more, uh, the most recent firsthand look at it. So that's very important. He sees them dancing in the streets, excited. They're like, they can't wait to sack Marine and get all this money and slaves. And that's very telling. We, we've already used that information in discussing prior chapters. Uh, so the power of reread comes forward again here. This is Valentine's situation is, yeah, there's a lot, it's, there's a lot of ins and outs here. But the bottom line is they're coming and they're, they're slave ships. And very few people who are considering what all this means in terms of in the story aren't thinking about <laughs> how big a factor that is that the Volantines are going to be mostly slaves. And that might mean they just switch sides rather than coming in and, and being huge allies to the Yunkish. They may be the exact opposite. We've discussed that. We're very aware of that. The Widow of the Waterfront made us very aware of that. Tyrion and Jorah are, by extension, quite aware of that. So it's a ticking clock, another window of opportunity. We got all these windows of opportunity. I should have pointed that out as a theme. <laughs> Time is of the essence. And even though Victorian doesn't understand all these factors, he understands the basics. He needs to get there before they do. Yeah, pretty much. He's not wrong about that. And Nina points out, as of Barristan 2 in The Winds of Winter, now we don't have the full Barristan 2 of Winds of Winter. It's been read at conventions, but without getting into too much detail, the Volantine fleet still hasn't arrived yet. So there's still time. You know, the, the fights are happening. Victorian's there. Barristan sees that Victorian has arrived. He doesn't know who it is. He doesn't know it's Victorian, but he recognizes the Greyjoy sails. And so we see these events start to play out. And well, that's the Battle of Fire for you. Battle of Fire indeed. Red Ralph is the one ordered to go through the Basilisk Isles of Sothorios. Check out our Nymeria 2 episode for why this may not have been a great idea. We even cite this group of ships in that episode, if I recall correctly. He mentions Aaron for the first time in a while, and it's one of the moments I really appreciate. He's like, maybe I did the wrong sacrifices. Maybe the prayers don't work as well over here. In a sense, like these are kind of dumb questions, <laughs> but I like them. I like that he's asking. In a world that has magic, you should it kind of makes sense to try to approach it that way. Like, logically speaking, shouldn't certain things work certain ways? And <laughs> I'm never going to shut up about that, I guess. And Victorian blames the storm god for a lot of these storms. Like, the storms did this, the storms did that. Yet he also associates the storm with his brother. This is, Nina writes, this is a very subtle piece of information we're getting here that Victorian's starting to subconsciously accept exactly the type of godhood that Euron aspires to, that people are ascribing the weather to him. Like, <laughs> this is your brother, man. Is he really summoning storms? Has he really gotten that big in your head? Well, that's exactly what he wants. He wants you to think of him that way. He wants you to be intimidated by him and to think that he's capable of doing things like this. As part of his mystique, he's like, if everyone's afraid of me, then, well, uh, the, the sea, Isle of Cedars itself is pretty cool. A lot of y'all pointed to it, and you knew I would too, because we don't shirk on the world-building opportunities to discuss, do we? It's really cool. There's both the Isle in its current state and wondering how it got that way. Then there's the interplay of the Doom 
and history even before that. Like Maester Kerwin says it was once called the Isle of a Hundred Battles. That sounds so cool. Like what changed? It, it was called Fair Velos. Uh, in one place, there was what happened to the cedars? The cedars are gone, right? <laughs> Stefan B says that this is not an uncommon thing in real world Pacific islands. The deforestation causes dramatic changes on the landscape and the islands itself. Uh, so that could be the thing. Joe Buckley wonders, is the place really cursed like Victorian wonders? Because he, he does have that strange dream. He has dark dreams and he wakes up with blood in his mouth. It could just be a nightmare where he bit his tongue. I mean, it doesn't really seem that mystical given the level of mysticism that this world can reach. A vague bad dream doesn't necessarily seem that much, especially given we know in the real world that if you are scared of things, you might have nightmares because of them, not the other way around. So Victorian, in other words, Victorian's dreams might be reflecting his anxieties and his fears, not evidence of a curse. But as usual, it could be both. He also writes that Doom's impact on Velos does sound like a tsunami, which I totally agree with. It's swept over, so much was destroyed, like the whole island was just, took a whole wall of water and it washed over nearly the entire thing, minus a couple of hilltops, like that one tower that's described here. She writes that one of the most devastating volcanic eruptions of all time was the 1883 eruption of Krakatoa, which caused lots of tsunamis. The Indonesian port of Merak was completely destroyed by tsunami with waves of up to 135 feet tall, which is actually less than what's said to happen at Velos, but certainly insane to think about. He also, <laughs> just the way his superstitious mind works when he's thinking about the fact that Velos flooded, he's like, well, the drowned god must have been, must have been present for that. As a, a flooding, drowning a whole island? That How could he not be present for such a thing? It's, a, it's a fascinating to see his mind work as, as thin or as thick as it, as it may be. <laughs> and, and for you and me and everyone listening, like, d- doesn't that island actually sound kind of cool? <laughs> like, that doesn't sound dark to me. Even the food is plentiful. I mean, he's like, I've never seen such big pigs before. Like, isn't that good? <laughs> anyway, we have an episode on the Doom if you want more explanation of, of that and, and um, what happened in the other areas. Such a great topic. I hope we learn more about it in the future. Quick mention of Ravens. Uh, he has some, doesn't send them back. I suspect Euron knew that would happen, which is part of why we theorize Euron may have considered that and given himself means to communicate or see what's happening through other methods, such as the Dusky Woman somehow. We've only seen Victorian laugh one time, I think. It's this chapter where he thinks of how he doesn't trust laughter and he can't tell whether the joke's aimed at him. That one time we saw him laughing, it was very clear that they weren't laughing at him because it was when Asha caught an axe in the air, chopped Theon's bread bowl in half, and his food went all over him. So Theon's drenched in food. Everyone starts laughing. Even Victorian knows who the butt of that joke is. And but it's actually a really interesting piece of character building as, as Victorian lacks the dimensions of other characters intentionally. He's not entirely two-dimensional. I mean, this is this is this is a really interesting psychological piece of his a piece of his psychological profile that he doesn't laugh because it, it hurts him a bit. Like he it's a psychological weakness. He's he's actually like tormented by it a bit. It explains part of why he's so grumpy and angry all the time is he doesn't have that outlet of humor and and like the normal good things that we do to relax and yeah, he doesn't have that. 
he uh, just sits in therapy with the dusky woman, not realizing that it's therapy. But that is what it is, right? Like, that is his outlet, is to talk to her. Speaking again of the Ravens, though, it's interesting that we, those Ravens were briefly mentioned. It's the monkeys that kind of take their place as animals that are an audience that sort of reflect humans, but with uh, a different sort of perspective. Like this, the ravens that were following Sam and Gilly around, or the ravens that are at Raven Tree Hall, ravens that are speaking and sort of providing extra detail to a scene. You know, we never see ravens flee because of something terrifying. The ravens, more often, really, they show up to help <laughs> with something terrifying, or they just show up and just hang out. They don't do anything. But in the case of Sam and Gilly, they specifically helped and, and fought, you know, small Paul. But here, the monkeys are, uh, we got a variety of interpretations from y'all, and I think a lot of them are valid. And that's the point of scenes like this in a lot of ways, is George is, is clever enough and, and not, spe- not specific enough to demand we see this a certain way. This scene is very open to interpretation. And on the surface, just seeing the monkeys freak out over Makoro is ominous, right? That shows that, yikes, they're scary. But it's also not necessarily meant to be seen so straightforwardly. Is Makoro dangerous in a vacuum or is he dangerous to them? He's their enemy. And I don't mean the monkeys, I mean the Ironborn because obviously he's on Team Danny and they're trying to steal her. So is it one of those things where Makoro to us is kind of a good guy or is he not because, well, R'hllor is a pretty dark subject and they burn people and, but they're also trying to save the world. So it's like, ah, I don't know. The fact that the monkeys are scared of him is very important, uh, one way or the other. There's a trope here as well. It's the animals hate him trope from TV tropes. We've all seen it in other places. And it's important to note with that trope, with what I was saying just now, just because animals hate someone doesn't mean they're a bad person. For example, um, I have another podcast with some other folks in the fandom on The Witcher, The Witcher series. Geralt the Witcher is basically a good guy. Cats hate him, though. Cats don't like him. But he's not a bad... It doesn't indicate that he's a bad guy. It indicates it that he's an outcast. It does. <laughs> that might be what we're seeing here, that the monkeys are... were harassing the Ironborn because the author's telling us they deserve to have feces thrown down at them. This is what we should be... How we should be judging them. <laughs> we're, we're, the monkeys are us. We're up in... The, we're, they can't do anything about us because we're the readers. It reflects their inability to do anything about us because Victorian can't seem to get rid of the monkeys. He has, he's helpless to do anything about it. So in that sense, it's, it's like us. We're the readers. He, he's not affecting us at all. We're judging him. So we're throwing feces down on him and laughing at him. But then we see Makoro and we're like, yikes, <laughs> this guy's scary. And there's other two other TV tropes that are fascinating that I wasn't super aware of here that I want to bring to your attention. There's the black cloak trope, which says anyone wearing a black cloak, especially if it has a hood, tends to be a bad guy. Mikoro doesn't have a black cloak until next chapter, so he will have one very soon. And the other trope that's mentioned in the Animals Hate Him uh, entry is red right hand, which is a generic indication of mark of evil. Like if you see a character in a, in a generic story and they have like a scar through their eye and their eye is like white and it's like all ugly then, and they otherwise look kind of rough, they're probably a bad guy. 
a good example is the Mark of Blood Raven. That wine blotch, it's really just a blotch. It doesn't really, it's not really an animal, but people argue that it looks like a, a raven. And the people who argue it looks like a raven are the ones who look on him as someone who's evil. They yeah, think I mean, that's that a mark whole, of evil. Yeah, it's like the mark of the beast. Exactly. The red, hand, red right hand is the mark of the beast. Makoro has the mark of the beast with the flame tattoos and the fact that he's looks like he's been charred. But the chapter ends with Makoro giving a mark of the beast to Victorian. It's his left hand, but it is red. So the tropes are clear here, but George is definitely not using them in their standard way. Because I just described why the animals hate him trope is, is changed. The black cloak trope is changed. The mark of evil trope, that might be the one that's a little more straightforward, but we have yet to see. Uh, a little more about the dusky woman too. She hisses at Mikoro too. So it's not just the monkeys. So what's up with that? That's, it's really hard to guess at that because we have so little idea what the deal with her is in general. I'm just going to leave that there because I, I, the dusky woman is, is such a huge mystery to me at this point. But it might be an extension of what we saw with the monkeys. Like they also are like, this guy's bad news. Mikoro is not your friend. Maybe he's a friend to Danny. Maybe he's a friend of the universe because he's trying to help so stop the long night, but he's no friend to you personally. And if he's no friend to Victorian, he's no friend to the dusky woman because as we already indicated, the death of Victorian would probably lead to the death of the dusky woman as well, or at least worse treatment. George R. R. Martin, probably thinking of Moby Dick here. Good catch by Nina. The line, I killed him, but he stabs at me from beyond the grave. From the hot heart, from the hot heart of whatever hell I sent him to, he thrusts his steel into my hand and twists. Very similar to a line from Captain Ahab who says, from hell's heart, I stab at thee. That is very similar. Along those same lines, a couple of y'all noticed that, yeah, Victorian does have a little bit of poetry in him. Lines like that, certainly are a good example, but also he thinks to himself, I can't let it be seen that their iron captain had begun to rust. And it's not the first time. Like, this to me is George giving a nod to Viking culture, Norse culture, Scandinavian culture in the, during the time of the Viking Age when, and before and after, but also during this time, where poetry and song were actually a big part of that culture uh, in a ways that maybe seem a little unlikely, but that it, but it's, it's definitely the case. It's kind of neat thinking about how the Vikings were such enemies of the Anglo-Saxons and the Anglo-Saxons were the quote, were the civilized world. But the Vikings produced way more like literature uh, of like fictional, there's like interesting stories and songs. Whereas what came from the Anglo-Saxon world was stories about God and saints and uh, much drier stuff. Anyway, that's an aside. So we'll, we'll be looking out for more of that um, in his future chapters because I think that's a neat to... to I, I'm always, like a lot of you guys are too, on the lookout for influences, trying to... Where George got some of these ideas. We'll never get all the way there, but we can get close and that's fun to do. Speaking of songs and names and stuff like that, Ironborn Ships continue to be an excellent source of metal band and or video game names. Raven Feeder, Iron Kiss, White Widow, Lamentation, Woe. Leviathan, Iron Lady, Reaper's Wind, Warhammer. Yet, as Nina writes, most of those ships are defeated not in battle, but by storms. Even metal bands can't stop the storms. The view of slavery and how it, it's in, another thing that just shows how deep in it their own culture is. 
Victorian hates slavery, but not because of compassion or high-minded thinking. It's just that it's weak to get slaves from the birth of other slaves. Like it's not a proper to take them any other way than from battle. So they're upholding the old way, which is fighting is good. Taking things by violence is correct. That is like the pinnacle. That's the pillar of his belief right there. And then from everything else flows from that. So it seems weird to be against slavery and for thraldom because they're so similar. But if you are a person that upholds violence and fighting above all else, then that difference is actually pretty large because the difference between a thrall is that they were captured, whereas a slave might be bred. Gross. <laughs> Tyrion 11. The one with Chekhov's mushrooms, a.k.a. a second son, becomes a second son. He is, of course, an actual second son, as he tells Ben Plum. And it's also his second to last chapter of the book. Despite that, this is arguably the climax of his arc for this book because, well, the next chapter is important, but it mostly puts the finishing touches on what this one gets going. Technically, they aren't actually second sons at the end of this chapter. It's just kind of agreed to, but the paperwork is in the next chapter. And this is where the excitement comes as well, the escape. It starts with Tyrion doing what he's good at, despite missing so much of it, meaning his nose, he has a nose for opportunity. The healer entered the tent murmuring pleasantries, but one sniff of the foul air and a glance at Yezin Zo Kagaz put an end to that. This ch- chapter transitions nicely from the Iron Suitor, just as much as that chapter was concerned with the increasingly bad infection in Victorian's hand, one that could be smelled by Maester Kerwin, and the smell was... I didn't describe it too much, but if y'all remember, it was... And this chapter begins also with a stench that indicates death. Uh, Yezan's fatal disease. Um, Not to mention whatever other disease he had from Sothorios on top of the Pale Mare. So there's definitely vibes of Theon and Danny's chapters here. Just as Theon and Jane escape amidst chaos largely created by armies that hate each other getting ready to march... So do we have here chaos created by a siege and disconnected armies and camps. And though they aren't stabbing each other like the phrase in Manderley's, well, give it time. <laughs> though armies aren't involved uh, in Danny's case because it's at the pit, tens of thousands of people were at the pit. So it, it's got a similar feel in that there's a huge amount of human activity and there's certainly chaos and death and all that around Danny's flight also. Snow gave Theon and Jane vital color for their escape, while the color matching Pale Mare, also white, I guess, not really, but (laughs) by name it is. And that is a bit of a twist since the Pale Mare that also kills so many in a much different way than Snow is also providing cover and it's a deadly thing, giving them hope at a new life. Because Tyrion recognizes Again, a narrow window of opportunity to escape. Yeah, that really is a theme today, isn't it? Narrow windows of opportunity. (laughs) Once Yezan dies, they might lose that chance because who knows what's going to happen after that? Who knows who's going to own them uh, at that point? And as we'll see in this chapter, even though Yezan is pretty terrible, he's one of the better ones. It's Again, we come to the theme of it can always get worse and as bad as Yezan is, looks like his descendants... And a lot of the other Yunkish are actually worse, like significantly worse. He's just grosser looking. But in terms of personality, yeah, I'm not giving him a good grade. But again, 
This is the guy who wanted to uphold the peace. We even find out in Quentin's next chapter that Yezan was close, this close to being named the new Supreme Commander. And if he had, he would have been like, we're we're chilling. We're not attacking the city. And that would have been, well, an interesting what if. But it's just another sign of the kind of man he is. He was actually wanted to uphold their agreement. He, He wanted to hold the contract. There's also a significant reestablishment of identity here. Another similarity to Theon and Danny's most recent chapters, right? We talked about how Danny was becoming, you know, being a dragon, flying off into the sky, uh, really climaxing who she is, uh, becoming a dragon. Theon is like, my, I got to know my name, becoming uh, not clearly not acting like Reek anymore because Reek would have never helped someone escape from Ramsay. And the, and here Tyrion says. A Lannister always pays his debts using those mushrooms that have that he once thought he might use on himself. Uh, so we've been waiting for those to get used for a while. And oof, talk about waiting. Those boots, oof, the boot mushrooms. I mean, are we sure those were really poisoned? <laughs> because any food object stored in a boot worn for 10 chapters while you go through places like the Sorrows and living the life of a slave. I mean, those were marinated and foot for a lot of time. And ugh, I mean, I feel like that just could kill you without poison, like eating that. <laughs> the point is, this is very reminiscent. That moment of giving the mushrooms is Tyrion like reclaiming his identity. This is the reminiscent of who he was prior to the Blackwater. And it's fun. It's cool. It's more interesting to see Tyrion be clever with his words, but there's a dark streak to this too, because Tyrion becoming like the Tyrion of old, well, that version of Tyrion has a lot of Tywin in him, right? And we see that come back with, as his personality returns, we also see some of that Tywin-esque lines of thinking start to appear as well. And that part's not so good. So, there's a big caveat here with Tyrion's identity being reclaimed is that part of that identity is very much wrapped up in Tywin. And that is, yeah, that's not good. And especially not given where we think he's going to end up, which is he's hit rock bottom and now he's on a way back up and it's probably not going to stop until he's at the right hand of Daenerys. And while we don't need any Tywin influencing Danny, we would rather have... It's Tywin-free Tyrion doing that, I think. Another thing that shows his identity return in a more subtle way is the return of his inner snarkiness. A lot of y'all cited that, and I actually kind of missed that, but it's a good point. Um, he telling jokes to himself, having sarcastic reactions that he just thinks rather than says out loud. It just shows the kind of person he is. He is a fairly sarcastic person. And kind of going back to those habits is, is, a, is a part of reclaiming his identity talking, especially. That's something he's so good at. Getting out of danger using his tongue. He insults a fellow slave named Scar in order to provoke a reaction so that he can then abase himself so that Scar can be all puffed up with pride so that he can then get away. Then he speaks with authority, almost arrogance to Brown Ben. It's a little more like Tywin, maybe. Who commands 500 sellswords? So one moment he's abasing himself to a slave soldier. Now he's talking down to Brown Ben Plum, who's got 500 subordinates, all of whom are killers. Uh, Which is just showing Tyrion's ability to, to say what needs to be said to accomplish what needs to be accomplished in order to survive. 
Uh, he even calls Casporio the cunning, annoying to his face. Like, what a change of heart, just like that. It's, it, it goes to show he's got a real plan here, although he is making it up a lot of it as he goes along. He's still in his element. He even wins over the man disagreeing with him over Danny. Like, they're arguing over what happened to Danny. Like, oh, she's dead now, blah, blah, blah. And Tyrion argues with the guy, but does it in such a way that's convincing and winning, like um, engaging. And the man goes from kind of frowning at him to laughing along with Tyrion's jokes. It's a very simple moment because that convincing this random old slave man about what happened to Danny isn't important. But it's an important illustration of where Tyrion's at mentally. Basically, everyone he encounters in this chapter, he tells them exactly what they need to hear in order for him to escape. Peaking with Brown Ben. Because Brown Ben looks at Tyrion like, your head's worth a lot of money back in Westeros. But Tyrion's like, hey, man, there's a lot of other things here. Like, do you really want to trust Cersei? Do you really want to trust that? Uh, isn't it better if you get things in writing? Isn't that more dependable? I'm right here. She's way over there. He makes a lot of really good points. And Ben is wary. He plays off of Ben's wariness. He's, he peaks his suspicions. He's like, Cersei might not give you what you want. And a wary man will listen to that. He's like, you're right. Cersei has a reputation. You've got me. I'm in your possession you'll have a better chance of what you of getting what you want from me because I'm right here. You can kill me. <laughs> you can't touch Cersei. So that's a huge deal. And it's why the next chapter, he's there signing papers. He's putting his name to documents. That is something Brown Ben can come back with. And it's like, that's a lot more tangible than Cersei's declaration that Tyrion's head is worth a lordship. Tyrion masterfully wades through the Ben's fears and desires and puts the, puts the fears aside the proper way and stokes the greed the proper way. It's, it's really expert. And Jorah Mormont's role here is important as well. It helps him get through the door. A big, scary-looking dude. And hey, another warrior for the squad. That's also important. It also maybe gives Brown Ben Plum something to work with because, hey, we already saw Brown Ben mentioned to Daenerys during her wedding that, hey, I was trying to buy Jorah's head to give to you. <laughs> so there's, there's that too. So that Ben sees the value in, in Jorah's presence like that as well. He knows Ben could be made to switch back to Danny too, because again, that's the nature of swords. He's not worried about that. He's like, yeah, you guys are fighting on the wrong side. It's like the last line of the chapter, but we're going to work on that. And Tyrion is Extreme confidence in his ability to, to get Ben to do that. And let's be fair, not only is Tyrion good at convincing people, but he's right. The reasons that Tyrion will convince Ben to switch sides are, are going to be clear and present. And it's only going to get worse when we see Barristan charge out and wreck the Yunkish siege. And then Victorian shows up and attacks the Yunkish as well. And the Tattered Prince switches sides. Like, Brown Ben, yeah. When we get to Tyrion's Winds of Winter chapter, Brown Ben's switch will be... Yep. It's like, ah, oh, we were planning on doing it the whole time. That's what he'll say. It's fun that Tyrion mentions Shaga and Bronn, who he says they profited by not killing me, but by taking my side instead. Now, they have no idea who those guys are. As they say, they're like, who's, who's Shaga? Who's Bronn? But Tyrion is honest. He's like, Shaga was going to kill me. Bronn had no reason to fight for me. Bronn became my champion and killed Sir Vardis Egan. 
But both those guys absolutely did profit massively by not taking the small profit, taking a little risk instead, and joining Tyrion. Those guys are sitting pretty now. So it's the same thing, and it's this clever language, talking about small risk for a great gain. Tyrion already knows that Brown Ben is a gambler, given he w- was wagering money on Syvass and is willing to take risks like that. Um, because the amount of money lost is nothing compared to gaining a lordship. Recall, if you've forgotten, how much Brown Ben is going to demand from Tyrion as a reward for this contract. I believe it's... 100,000 gold dragons, which is an astonishing sum, like ridiculously high, and land. (laughs) So, yeah, you can see why Brown Ben Plum was willing to lose some thousands of silver playing Syvast, because if he had won, he would have gotten this. But now he sees another way to get that, and it's even more. He's offering perhaps more than what Cersei would have offered. Now, we have to remember, all this is possible not just because of Tyrion's talking ability, but because of his birth. Like, obviously, he can't be promising this massive wealth if he's just some random guy. Like, they'd be like, well, where are you going to get this money from? He's like, Casterly Rock, yo. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, of course. They have gold mines there. So that's believable. But if he wasn't a Lannister, again, he'd be screwed. And that is an important factor here. We have to take a look at the helpless people here. Penny would be screwed. The poor uh, two-headed person, same deal. Sweets, perfect example. Sweets is hard to be, it's hard for us to put ourselves in Sweets' place. Living that life, being born that way, being unique in that way, being seen as something else, being seen as as lesser than, and knowing that they're probably going to suffer because Sweets was lucky, quote unquote, to have Yezan as a master. Sweets genuinely liked Yezan, and Yezan seemed to be genuinely good to Sweets. And Hard, like from a really harsh world perspective, what kind of life could Sweets have expected to have elsewhere that would have been better than this? I don't know, but it doesn't, it, the opportunities are probably scant, right? We, it, it's not an insult to say that, it's just a judgment of reality. And so this is the fate of a lot of the people here in, in this so-called grotesquerie, which I don't really like that word, but we don't really, I don't know what else to call it. This is another important part of this chapter because it's not just seen in this moment of the fates of Yezan's favorites. It's also in an important moment for Tyrion as part of his personal growth on the very opposite side of bringing back the lessons of Tywin, which we don't want to see him go back into those ways. We see him making this very nuanced and perceptive comparison between slavery and servitude in a place like Westeros. Like, a lot of slaves don't have a life that's much different than a serving man at Casterly Rock. They basically don't have freedom to leave Casterly Rock either. They maybe have an opportunity to. They have a little bit more independence, but it's functionally not that different. And the bottom line for both cases, whether you're slave or servant, is the randomness of who owns you or is your employer. And as Tyrion thinks, like it, it, it probably would be better in life to be owned by a genuinely benevolent person than it would be to be employed forcibly by a brute or a terrible guy like, I don't know, Tywin or Gregor Clegane. Imagine being a serving person at Gregor's castle versus a slave to someone like Yezan. Which would you rather be? I don't know. Probably the slave, though, because 
Gregor's going to kill you, right? I mean, forget your independence. The man's just going to beat you to death one day. At least Yezin kind of cares for you. Yeah, at least you get nice stuff and you can have good food and I don't know. like As far as being a slave to someone goes, I would choose Yezin over a lot of people I could be a slave to. Yeah, yeah, which is such a weird thing to find ourselves talking about and thinking about. But it's realistic because this is a real world thing. Like there's lots of people who have jobs out there that they can't really leave. They're not slaves. But they can't afford to quit. I mean, like some things like healthcare or other things are depending on it, or their families, or both. So, not a real world extension to this line of thinking for Tyrion. It's really important. It's a, a good example of how, hey, this is Sunday. So a lot, I know a lot of y'all see our recurring Sundays as something like a Song of Ice and Fire church, and. This is when that really comes out because one of the things that people do in church is they look at their holy books and they discuss and debate moral lessons within those holy texts. Song of Ice and Fire isn't a holy text. Maybe it is to us, but that's what we're doing here. We're looking at these ethical situations. We're comparing them to our own lives. We're asking ourselves what we would do, what we would prefer. As we try to apply this to our own lives, we try to suss out the morals while trying to also understand the morals of their times are different. And that they're different people with different attitudes, different circumstances, different upbringings, different traumas, different wants, et cetera. So it just goes to show that this is way more than a book series, y'all. It is a way of life, and I'm thankful for it. All right. I'm moving on. Tyrion hasn't fully clicked on all these things. He's, it's, it's a very progressive, good line of thinking to make these comparisons in his mind, to think about the plight of people who are way less fortunate than him. But Joe writes a really good line here. In very human fashion, George shows us these learned experiences, but also the tendrils of the past that impede that growth because his high blessing or his high birth has been a blessing that it has saved his life so many times. But it's also a curse in that it makes it hard for him to understand these things, that he was behind the curve in learning these things. The stuff that he's learning right now are things that a lot of these other folk figured out pretty early in life because it was their life. They were able to make these comparisons. They weren't the ones being served to. They're the ones doing the serving so they can make these comparisons. It's already their life. We've mentioned many times that Tyrion's advice could really help Danny in a lot of ways, but there are traps in the writing. For example, what we said about Tywin and Tyrion giving Tywin-esque advice to Danny and not necessarily realizing or that being bad. George is tricky, but on reread, we can see these things more clearly. Consider Tyrion judging Danny's skills here. The fact that there were any good wills at all within a day's march of the city only went to prove that Daenerys Targaryen was still an innocent where siegecraft was concerned. She should have poisoned every well. Then all the youngish men would be drinking from the river. See how long their siege lasts then. That was what his lord father would have done. Tyrion did not doubt. A couple things about that. It's true that she's pretty inexperienced, but he's missing the point. He says she's innocent where siegecraft is concerned. Well, Tyrion, you're innocent where being human is concerned, while treating people decently is concerned. He's not even considering why Danny's doing that. He chalks it up to inexperience, but that is not the case. It might be part inexperience, but he's missing her aim, which is to not wreck the drinking water. It's actually pretty straightforward. Poisoning the wells would leave them poisoned for a while. And she was just out there trying to 
replant the olive groves and the beans and all that. You can't do that if the wells are poisoned. Tyrion's strategy, or rather, Tywin's strategy that Tyrion is parroting is very much focused on power, on the city, not on the people in the city. It's on Marine, not the Miranese. Danny is focused on the Miranese, not Marine. There's a very important dichotomy. One's about the people, one's about the city and the power it represents. Danny has power from the people. Tywin is about power from the, the structure and the, the hierarchies. And Tyrion doesn't even consider that. So that's a really, that's a really big point. Uh, but Tyrion, when he makes other observations, they're a little more straightforward about troop dispositions and where the different leaders are. He looks at the legions from New Gis and thinks, well, they're probably decent, but there's pro- they're probably no match for the Unsullied. That's a good reminder because he's right. The Unsullied would kick their butt. The men from New Gis are, they're soldiers. They're trained, they're drilled. They're no joke. But they have like three-year terms, which is nothing like a lifetime of harsh upbringing and constant training. And let alone the wine of courage that the Unsullied have drank a lot of. Like they, they literally feel less fear and pain from a, because of a, a conditioning through a, a, a drink, you know? It's, it's these, all these advantages that, regular soldiers could never have. In concert with Barristan's chapter, there's some dragon talk. So let's, uh, let's get to that. Here's a cool quote. The eyes were where a dragon was most vulnerable. The eyes and the brain behind them. Not the underbelly, as certain old tales would have it. The scales there were just as tough as those along a dragon's back and flanks. And not down the gullet either. That was madness. <laughs> These would-be dragon slayers might as well try to quench a fire with a spear thrust. <laughs> Death comes out of the dragon's mouth, Septon Barth had written in his Unnatural History. But death does not go in that way. Yeah, as we said in Barris's chapter, he's mistaken about Aegon and his sister's dragons, and it was a shot to the eye, as Tyrion hints out here, that took down Meraxes. Shout out to our Septon Barth episode and our Fire and Blood Dragons episode. We had some excellent guests for that one. So more, more talk along these lines is there. Tyrion knows his dragon history when talking about limited vulnerabilities of dragons, Nina writes. Not only do we have the example of Meraxes, but she expands with other examples, mentioning Morgul stabbed in the eye by the so-called Burning Knight's spear. Morgul was very young, but still. Uh, Shrykos was killed by Hob the Hewer, driving an axe into her brain. Even Tessarion was finally killed by having longbow arrows shot into her eye from a distance uh, when she was disabled. This was by a longbowman named Billy Burley. These aren't the only way dragons have died, of course. Uh, There's plenty of other methods, but this is certainly uh, backing up Tyrion's point that this is one of the more reliable ways to get it done. Speaking of Barristan, close to the root of Tyrion's hesitation to reveal himself to Danny is Selmy. And here's the quote. He could not imagine Barristan the Bold greeting him with anything but hostility. Selmy had never approved of Jaime's presence in his precious Kingsguard. Before the rebellion, the old knight thought him too young and untried. Afterward, he had been known to say that the Kingslayer should exchange that white cloak for a black one. And his own crimes were worse. Jamie had killed a madman. Tyrion had put a quarrel through the groin of his own sire, a man Sir Barristan had known and served for years. I'm not sure Tyrion's right about all this. Like, he might be right about Barrison greeting him with hostility. That part, he might be right. That still might be the bottom line. But I'm not sure I agree with all these details. He says his own crimes have been worse. Jamie killed a madman where Tyrion killed his own father. Mm, 
I'm not sure Barrison would see Tyrion's crime as worse. He might. He might see killing his father as worse. But Barrison is a Kingsguard through and through, and killing the king, you t- he took an oath to not do that or to protect him. So I'm not sure. I think he would probably judge Jamie worse. Not to mention, he doesn't have a lot in common with Tyrion. So in, in that sense, they're not very similar as like human beings, like what they're into, what they like, <laughs> how they talk, you know, how they relate to people. So that might be a, a roadblock between them. But the missing link here is Tywin. It's, it's, it's mentioned here, but unexplored. Tyrion assumes that Barristan likes Tywin or at least respected him because he served with him for many years. But serving with him or serving under him doesn't mean he liked him or respected him. And there's a lot of reasons to be suspicious of that. And, and they do have a big history together. So it is tricky. One of the parts of that, the history is partly explored in our Duskendale episode, which I've already mentioned, but I'm going to mention it again because Tywin's a huge part of that episode. Cersei and Tywin are relevant here. Again, we mentioned why Cersei kicked him out of the Kingsguard. So that might reflect on the Lannister uh, view or Barristan's view of the Lannisters. That came with mocking in front of the court. Like everyone laughed at Barristan. And then they gave his cloak to Jamie, who he, we just went through how much he resented that. So he's no fan of, of Cersei either. So the fact that Tyrion is on the opposite side of that might be a point in his favor. Tywin and Barristan were both on the stepstones to fight the Ninepenny Kings. When Selmy became famous forever, killing Maelys the Monstrous, Selmy's fame increased even more at Duskendale, that commando raid. Tywin was hand to the king then, of course, and in charge of the army besieging the city. He has reservations over Duskendale, which Tyrion doesn't know about. A serious reservation. So that changes the picture a lot that might impact how he views what was done. We know he's now regretting perhaps standing there and not doing anything about Ares's madness. Not just that, but fast forward to what happened at the sack. Barristan, again, I'll bring up, is going to express rage and sorrow over the death of the Targaryen princelings and, and princess. And that is Tywin's man and men that did that. Tywin was responsible for the sack. It was Tywin's people that caused this sorrow that Barristan feels. So this is kind of an unexplored thing. I don't know what Barristan thinks of Tywin. Even the rest of his chapters don't make it that clear. So it might work out a little better for Tyrion than he thinks because Barristan has a lot of reason to hate the Lannisters and Tyrion is even though he's one of them, is also not one of them, right? He's clearly aligned against them. He killed Tywin. There's no going back to that. This is not a trick. Tyrion's definitely not a Lannister anymore, whatever his name says. Penny, she was not handling this well. She handled the ship quite well, but this, she's locked into this whole bondage thing and, and trying to hide from the real world and think that things will work out. Joe puts it as retreating into fantasy land as a way to keep it together. She's struggling to face this new reality. So she isn't facing this new reality. She's hiding from it. And Tyrion is forcing her to see it as it is. And it's not pretty, but it is keeping her alive. And well, more on that in the next chapter when they have more direct conversations about it. As for Jorah, I mean, very few people are big fans of him as a character in terms of a person. As far as a character, he's interesting, I think. But in terms of like liking him as a person, of course, that's, <laughs> that's a tall order. But even here, just kind of like how we feel sympathy for Cersei over a lot of things, even though 
we have a lot of reasons to dislike her or even hate her. No one wants to see Jorah just beaten every night to the point where he's not even like feeling it. This is very uncomfortable. Joe writes it as like it's beating a rug almost, which is like how far gone in your mind you have to be to just actually not feel it. This is pretending you don't feel it, but it sounds like he's actually not feeling it, which is like, wow, you really have to be gone in your head to feel that way. And mm. so here's a here's another changing gears here. Another contrast to the Iron Suitor comes with Tyrion's distinct cynicism about the gods, which is the opposite to what we get from Victorian's extreme superstitions. Quote, If there are gods to listen, they are monstrous gods who torment us for their sport. Who else would make a world like this so full of bondage, blood, and pain? Who else would shape us as they have? As I said before, Tyrion's going to perhaps move more towards that first thought that if there are gods, they're monstrous who torment us for their sport. Because when he sees things like Makoro still alive <laughs> on board a flagship of an ironborn fleet carrying a dragon horn, not to mention Victorian's hand, he's probably going to see that too. Like, all right, the gods are real, <laughs> but they are cruel and monstrous like I thought. It was, it was option A. <laughs> it's either, are they either cruel, cruel and monstrous or B, not real? So yeah, I think he's going to settle on A. It's, it's the Lovecraft view of the world, which is that... Um, the Love Shack? Love Shack. <laughs> no, the Love Shack is a little place where we could get together. But Lovecraft's view of the world is... Lovecraft's view of the universe is that it wasn't neutral. Like some people are like, ah, oh, you know, the world is neutral. The universe doesn't hate us. It doesn't it just doesn't care. It just is there. It's just a thing. And if if it destroys us or helps us, it's nothing to them, to the universe. It's mindless. Well, Lovecraft's view of the world was that it was evil, that the world universe is actively out to get us. Anyway, this is not a podcast about H.P. Lovecraft, but George is heavily influenced by him growing up, so we do have to bring it up every once in a while. It's funny that we bring it up now and not in the Victorian chapter where the Ironborn vibes around Lovecraft are consistent and common. But this all, this, this line of thinking, this is bitter Tyrion. This is cynical Tyrion that he's trying to get away from. So it's a little bit of maybe just a minute of backsliding. But it's also not, it's also not inaccurate, right? Like the world is a pretty harsh place. Uh, and that's when he's really starts to feel bad too about about Penny as he's mixed feelings about what he's doing. He's like, should I let her believe these bad things about let her believe good things about the world to keep the mask on her? And, he, and then in another moment, he's upset with himself for lying to her. He's like, the reason she's struggling right now is because I tried to make it seem so good. I tried to assuage all her fears, and now that she's faced with the reality of it, she's not prepared because. I was just trying to make her feel good at the time. So it's a difficult series of questions, but they're good questions that Tyrion's asking. You want him to be a better person. And the only way that's going to happen is by getting rid of some of the things he was taught. And the only way that's going to happen is by thinking them through and you know working on himself. Self-therapy, things like that. Joe calls this bit a cracking paragraph, and I have to agree. Nina writes that it's kind of similar to a point in the mystery night when we have that character Kyle the cat who loses on purpose in order to get reaccepted with uh, a lord who he had known as a kid. And he's like, oh, he knew me as a kid. He'll be happy to have me back again. Of course, what ends up happening is the guy's like, why would I want you? You were terrible just now. And of course, he was terrible just now because he lost on purpose. But whoop, 
And here we have a similar line where this one slave is like, Gazdor's color. I've known him since we was born. He's almost like a brother to me. Like, mm, I, don't, I don't know about that. I don't know this Gazdor, but I doubt that, dude. Derry says, something to consider is that Tyrion has been sober for a good while now, and he's had to be physically active too. This is likely the healthiest we've seen him yet. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, we brought up the alcohol in Cersei's chapter but Tyrion's been off of, of, of wine, not entirely, but mostly off of wine for a lot longer. And you're right, he has had extreme physical exertions. He's had to scrub the floors and, and things like that, do, practicing riding the pig and dog. So it's a good point. Krieger Damarung writes, remember that time when Tywin told the Mountain Clan bosses, even in the West, the prowess of the clans is known. Oh yeah, great point. See, Tywin knows how to flatter. See, that's the good, that's a great example because Tywin's not putting himself down. That's a perfect example of him pumping someone else up without the implication that he himself is lesser. It's a very specific line of, of speaking. Maintaining his own pride while pumping up theirs as a way to get them to fight for him. So that's, yeah, that's a fair point that Tywin, Tyrion got some of this from Tywin too. Uh, when that moment happens, Tyrion even thinks to himself, ooh, definitely done, father. He's like, oh, well played. Not everything, let's be clear, not everything Tyrion learned from Tywin is bad. A lot of things he learned are very useful. Part of the reason Tyrion has survived as long as he had is not just because of his birth, but because of some of these things he learned. So give Tywin a little bit of credit. Dornish Dame says, I wonder if Sweet's echoes sat in a little, the former losing the protection of Yezan and the latter, the protection of John. Scared to see what's coming for both of them. Ooh, really good, dark, but good idea to consider. I agree with that. Other people did weigh in on that at the time too. Um, not at the time because we haven't gotten there yet, but in advance of that, of, of Satin's fate, because yeah, he's brought, been brought up a lot as an object of denigration um, because he's high profile as John Stewart, but that raised profile is uh, why he's brought up so often as a as someone to insult. So good point. I hope I hope it works out for Satin, but we'll see. He says he's gone as far east as he's willing, which is a very much a Lomas Longstrider line. He even thinks of Lomas Longstrider here. And that is one of the many historical figures Tyrion is a parallel to. The other one, of course, is the dwarf jester mushroom of Dance of Dragons fame. We've made this comparison before. Tyrion killing with mushrooms is rather fitting, given his namesake, Lady R. Ardras, with the pun of the week, saying there couldn't have been mushroom in that boot. And we get a line that's reminiscent of what's coming for Victorian when, when someone says, you can't sail the Dothraki Sea, fool. And that was a pretty foolish thing to say to Victorian. But in this in this chapter, we have the goat boy saying, you can't drown in grass because for the same uh, reason, someone brings up the Dothraki Sea and Tyrion isn't, doesn't know that it's grass. <laughs> but uh, you can drown in grass, as we'll see in Daenerys' uh, chapters. It's just not the literal drowning. It's the, good Lord, this is endless. I meant to mention Henry II earlier uh, in Cersei's chapter because she uses the Henry II defense about for her innocence over the death of the High Septon. She says, oh, I didn't tell Osney to kill him. I just said he's a problem and he got overzealous with his fulfilling my wishes. Thomas Beckett was killed by some knights of Henry II. And this was a big to-do because Beckett was a religious figure at this point. And, you know, killing church leaders is pretty bad even when you're a king. And 
his defense was, I didn't tell them to kill him. I just said, won't someone rid me of this turbulent priest or of this meddlesome priest? There's a couple of different translations. And so they did. They went and rid him of that. But so, And he claims, oh, I wasn't ordering that. I was just exclaiming. I was just exasperated. So that Cersei basically said the same thing. And here we have uh, Henry V, also of England, who died of dysentery. Well, probably is what killed him at the siege of Meaux, um, a French city. And yeah, so Henry's coming up today. And with that, we're done. Last week, we covered 173 minutes, 47 seconds. This week, 161 minutes, 47 seconds. Same. So far, 2,341 minutes of 29.22. So about 580 left. 80% are of are, uh, the way through now. Don't forget to like the video and or the podcast. Leave us a review or a um, message or an upvote or whatever it is that is the equivalent on your platform. Also, don't forget to check out our website if you have specific chapters you want to go back and check out. Shea built it at historyofwesteros.com that you can pick out whatever chapter from whatever book and go right to it. You don't have to sort through all the Val Arboretus. But also, on our Patreon, we have all the chapters arranged in POV order. So you could listen to just Arya chapters in a row, just Cersei chapters in a row. That's available for patrons. So if you sign up for that, you can have full access to that. It's not available for dance yet because we're not done with it, but it will be once we're done or a little while after we're done. And it is up for the other four as of now. As of always, we like to mention which episodes of our scripted content were mentioned here. If you want to dive deeper into any of these subjects, for example, Septon Barth, Doom of Valyria, the Battle of Fire, a white cloak turned is still white about Barristan and Kristen Cole and other comparisons. There's also some of that in our Serwin of the Mirror Shield episode, by the way. Duskendale, Defines of Duskendale, also Barristan, Tywin, Ares, comparisons to Cersei. A lot of relevance to what we talked about today. A little less directly related, but definitely related, is Nymeria 2, which gives you lots of information about Sothorios, which some of Barristan's, I'm sorry, Victorian's men passed by. And of course, I mentioned Fire and Blood Dragons, which we talk a lot of uh, stuff about what we learned about dragons specifically from Fire and Blood. Of course, we learned about dragony stuff elsewhere, but it's very specifically focused on what came from that particular book. Next time, I got a little extra creative with the titles this time. John 12 is going to be first up next time, and, and I'm calling that one Red Sword, Black Ice, aka Dark Wings, Dead Things in the Water. The Discarded Knight, Red Beard, Black Male, aka Hostages and Dragon Slaying. The Spurned Suitor, Red Door, Black Blade, aka Prisoners and Dragon Taming. And The Griffin Reborn, Red Hair, Black Finger, aka A Stone Griffin Takes Wing, Breathing Shadow Fire. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Another unusual set of chapters because it's three pre named ones by George. It's three characters that don't have a lot of POV chapters, and John, who <laughs> is like none of those things. Thanks again, everyone, for attending live. If you commented, joined the chat, or just lurked, appreciate it either way. Oh, quick last minute super chat from Natalie Smith says, smash that like button, y'all. I'm about to listen to this from the beginning. Thanks for all you do. Well, we appreciate it, Natalie, and thanks for the support. Thanks for the help of, or thanks to the help of Joe and Nina for their invaluable writing assistance. 
Once again, I recommend checking out their uh, solo work. Joe's show is called Isle of Faces, and Nina's blog is called Good Queen Alley, again with one L. Thank you very much to the mods in our Facebook group. Y'all are doing such a great job keeping consistent with the artwork uh, attached to the posts and driving the discussion. Very awesome for us to have that. We're very thankful. Also, uh, Flick and Slack and Discord, a little mention about our Discord. Uh, Shea has been putting in some extra work over on our Discord. We've got some cool uh, roles. We've got different sigils that you can attach to your profile. You can be... Uh, like a Targaryen, you can be House Cod, <laughs> you can be, there's a Dane sigil, there's lots of cool stuff. I'm I, sorry, I was going to say something and then it's, I never had a chance. Anyways, uh, Bat. Bat, okay. So I, I covered it, I guess. <laughs> and then uh, thanks to Michael Klarfeld, aka our man over at Claradox.de, doing great work with maps and other cool stuff. We appreciate him doing our video intro and all these maps that you see behind us. You can get them at cleardocs.de or over at phantomaniacs.com. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Rubidus intro music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular intro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for making the sound quality as good as it could be. Thank you to all patrons who support us financially. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here at all. You are the true anchor to our existence. Here Be Dragons is doing WandaVision. The first three episodes are out and they're reviewing them. A good time to check that out. Do so if you are interested in that show. And it looks like we got a last minute super chat again. Uh, Cam, Cam, thanks. You kids are amazing. Amen. <laughs> Great way to close out church for this Sunday. And be sure to check out Ashea on Fandom Media on Mondays covering the last few episodes of The Expanse. Season five. So good. The season's been amazing. Hope you're enjoying it too. Till next week, everybody. Valar re read us.